This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran firefighter burn survivor and amputee Luis Navarez. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from escaping gang culture as a child, his journey into the fire service, firefighter fitness, leadership, the electrocution that took his arm in 2002, the Porterville line of duty deaths, the Phoenix Society, firefighter burn survivor retreat, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Luis Navarez. Enjoy. Well, Lewis, I want to say firstly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. And secondly, thank you so much to Lionel Crowther, our mutual friend, for connecting us today. So as an opening um, kind of icebreaker, I guess, talk to me about Lionel and how you guys first met. I met Lionel through the Phoenix Burn Society as a firefighter burn survivor. I attended one of the World Burn Congress um, I believe we were in Texas that year. And uh, at that time, Lionel, um, I, I believe he was uh, 
collaborating with uh, Washington DC Firefighters Burn Foundation, Jason Woods and and Charlie. Jason's the president. At that time, they were they were putting a program together to for 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 actually for for um, for firefighter burn survivors. They wanted they wanted to put a program together to be able to take us out to Colorado, the Adaptive Sports Center. So I think Lionel was already connected with them. And one of Lionel's uh, job or assignment was to find the uh, firefighter burn survivors throughout the United States, including Canada. And uh, so we can start this program. So I met Lionel as one of the firefighter burn survivors. You know, they gathered 10 firefighters throughout United States and Canada, and we attended a a week at the Adaptive Sports Center in Colorado, and that's really where our friendship began. You know, because we all pretty much uh, had some type of relation to our trauma and uh, our you know our fire our fire service culture. So that's where we met, and from there, Lionel and I connected, and we've been uh, great buddies since then. You know, we've uh, he's always been there for me, and uh, he's someone that can relate to me you know, through, through our good times and bad times. And he's always been a friend that, that I can call at any time. And I think he feels the same way. We have a lot in common as far as uh, reaching out and helping others, being able to relate to other firefighters that, that are facing some type of, uh, some type of trauma or, or just, uh, you know, need some mental uh, wellness, uh, talk or get together, I think, you know, that's, that's what we're able to provide for one another. So, so Lionel and I, you know, I've met his family and I've been out to, to Winnipeg and, and spent some time out there and visit Lionel and he's been out here at my place. And so we become really close friends. We, we depend on each other when we need each other. Beautiful. Well, there's another mutual friend as well. My guest for episode one, we're almost at 800 episodes now. Episode one was Mitch Dreyer, who I met in the Edo Patel workshop in Colorado and just was blown away by this brother firefighter that was doing all the things that we were struggling to do on rings with two arms with with one arm. So uh, did you meet Mitch during that Colorado retreat as well? Yes, I did. And, and Mitch is another close friend of mine. Uh, we we all became really close friends. You know, we you know, there's you know, we've met several several firefighters throughout the ten years we've been doing ten eleven years we've been doing this. Um, we've met, but uh, there's a group of us that have kept in touch with one another, and and Mitch is one of them. Mitch uh, and Lionel, you know, we've kept in contact and we bonded pretty well. Uh, so yeah, I, I I spent you know some time. I go over there and visit Mitch and go skiing over there with him and. In the Crested Butte, uh, so Mitch and I kind of put a lot of humor together when we're when we're together. You know, he's missing his his right arm. I'm missing my left arm. So you know, we'll uh, I'll stand behind Mitch and uh, and he'll raise up his left arm and and I'll raise up my right arm and I'm hiding behind Mitch and we'll just flex or clap and you know. And it's funny because we walked we walked up to people. Um, to give them a hug and they don't see me behind and they're not really thinking and Mitch is hugging them with two arms. So, you know, we, we usually, we tell each other, Hey, I bought some gloves. Make sure you give me the, the right glove and I'll give you the left glove. You know, so we've, we've had a really good, good uh, communication and good relationship um, with Mitch and his family. But yeah, they're, they're both awesome, awesome firefighters. Beautiful. Well, 
firstly, for people listening, where on planet Earth are we finding you sitting today? I'm sitting in uh, Visalia, central, that's in central California, right in the center of California. Um, I, I'm at home this morning. Uh, this is where I've uh, lived here for uh, a little over 30 years, 32 years. Uh, this is where my kids were were raised in in, in Visalia, California. Um, so th- that's that's a lot of people. I worked for the city of Tulare, which is next door to Visalia. We're 10 minutes away from each other. Um, people usually ask me, where's Tulare? I tell them it's in between one Larry and three Larry. <laughs> So they don't forget how to pronounce it. But yeah, I'm in Visalia, um, California. That's 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 where I'm at now. Brilliant. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in the city of Los Angeles. Born uh, there in Kaiser, Hollywood. Uh you know, my, my parents, uh, both, both, both are, uh, born in Mexico. So at that time, my, my dad was a cook, um, and he worked his way up to be a chef. He was a chef for over 25 years, but, uh, that was his, uh, that was his insurance Kaiser at the time, I guess, cause all, all, all we were all born there, myself and my other two siblings. Um, so we, we pretty much were born in, 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 uh, we pretty much were raised in Los Angeles our, our whole life. You know, I didn't move out of there till I became, uh, uh, till I got hired with the fire service, which was, you know, after high school at 19 years old, I got uh, hired with Cal Fire, which back then it was a CDA of California Department of Forestry. Um, I applied as a seasonal firefighter. What happened? I was, you know, where I, I was brought up in a in a community there in Los Angeles, in the Northeast Los Angeles area, and you know, growing up, it was a, a lower middle class uh, area, a lot of kids in on the block on the in the streets there. So uh, I was a pretty active child growing up. Um, had a lot of fun uh, out till uh, till sundown. You know, once you get out of school, it's, it's, there's so many kids out there to be playing with, but, uh, you know, that's, that's really where I spent my, most of my time. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, as I grew up, uh, a lot of gang activity going on, um, you know, during the, during those years in the late seventies, early eighties. So it was pretty, pretty rough, you know, but, uh, again, like I tell people that it's a beautiful neighborhood. But for some reason, the pizza wouldn't deliver down our street. Um, but uh, but it was a beautiful neighborhood. Everybody knows. Everybody knew everybody in in that neighborhood. Um, but again, there was uh, not too many positive role models there for us. Uh, you know, there was a couple of of uh, a couple a couple. I should say some of my friends' uh, parents dad that became our coach one of them became our, our soccer coach and one of them was our baseball little league coach he recruited the kids on the block there and uh, you know that's probably one of the one of the my favorite or best moments that being able to have that experience because my parents were working you know working all the time so so that you know that that kind of kept kept me busy so with that um 
I, I lived in LA for a little while. I started in Burbank and then moved um, out of LA to Huntington Beach because I worked for Anaheim Fire at the time. Um, and, you know, you obviously see that sprawling urban jungle that is Los Angeles. And there are some communities where the environment is set up for the kids to succeed. And there's other communities where you would argue the environment is set up for the kids to fail. And as an Anaheim firefighter, I got to see a lot of the gangs in you know that area that kind of bled out into Orange County as well. Um your parents are working hard like so many, you know, first generation immigrants do in this country. What was the pull towards the wrong path? And, you know, was it the the sports coaches and obviously your parents that kept you from finding yourself down that road that maybe some of your peers did? Well, I think I I did uh I did follow the bad uh path for a while. You know, there was a, a time where you know, I, I grew up with a lot of older. I had some some family that lived there, and so I grew up with a lot of the older uh, older guys uh, and his buddies. And uh, so, as far as being around my my generation or my age of kids, I was pretty advanced because I was growing up with uh, a lot of older older guys that were involved with you know street stuff, streets, what's going on out there. But, uh, uh, you know, I just uh, I got to the point where, you know, I was always a worker because that's what my dad taught us. He, he was a worker. He's a workaholic. And he I picked up, you know, his work ethics. And I think that's really what uh, what made me who I am today, because uh, he had a project every day or every weekend. You know, he was always working. He had uh, rentals. So there was always something to do at the house or at one of his rentals and a, a little bit of everything. He was a handyman. He did everything. Um, you know, like you said, that's a first, first, uh, uh, first generation of immigrants. So they're, they come in hungry and, and that's their lifestyle. So that's one thing I can say is uh, I picked up his work ethics and, and he taught us a lot of uh, our values of uh, respect, respecting the others, respecting um, your elders and so on. So that, that, I think those values, um, really, uh, helped me through the fire service because those are the standard, the basic values of the fire service, you know, having respect, loyalty, you know, discipline, and we can go on with the values that are expected in the fire service. So I came in with those values already. Um, but again, there was a, there was a, a lot of uh, influence there out in front of uh, in front of our house. I mean, there was a lot of influence, uh, negative influence, I should say, that I was, uh, I think I was attracted to. And and uh, I was one of those kids that, uh, you know, when the ice cream truck came and people were buying ice cream, I would sit in the back bumper and, and, and let it take me for a ride all the way up the street. And just, you know, that was one of those kids that uh, I was always... Uh, looking for a challenge or a risk, uh, that's, that's really, you know, that's, I was very, very active, I should say. Um, I don't know if I was pretty hyper kid because, uh, I always needed to stay busy. So I think that's, you know, that's, and again, the sports, you know, the sports, uh, you know, uh, taught me a lot of the, the teamwork, um, and all that comes to the, to the fire service. I think later on in life, it all connects, but there was a time, you know, there was also that dark side growing up in L.A. where where I, I, I experienced a lot of 
the individuals that are friends that I grew up with, that I played sports with, you know, getting shot or killed or going to prison. Um, I seen all that happen in front of my, my, my face or, so I, I experienced all that lifestyle and uh, I, I thank God every day that I'm still here that, it, you know, because a lot of my friends didn't, didn't, uh, didn't make it that far. You know, they, at that, at that time, at, during those years in the eighties, people were getting killed at 16, 17 years old. You know, that was the, the lifestyle, the gang life back then. James, is, can, can you hear me well? Because there's in the neighborhood, there's cutting grass or doing some yard work. No, actually, it's perfect. I, I can't hear them at okay. all. So, you so, so there was that side of it also, James, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, for us, like you mentioned, there was uh, certain areas in Los Angeles that didn't have all the programs. Um, and that was one of ours. In our neighborhood, we had Little League or boxing. We had a boxing gym. Um, but most of it, I did it on my, I would say on my own, you know, my parents were working so much that I don't, you know, I don't recall my dad ever taking me to practice or to watching my game, my baseball game, you know? Um, so I, I would go to the, to the boxing gym on my own and during the summertime, well, me and a couple other kids on the block, we take the RTD, the bus back then, take one bus. Uh, and this is, I'm, I'm, this is, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. I'm, I'm a child. You know, you don't really see that nowadays. You know, we walked to school back then as elementary school. You walk, you walk home, you walk to junior high. You walk. We always walked, you know. But again, my parents, you know, were working. Um, nowadays, I don't think my kids ever walk to school in the, their whole lifetime. You know, we, <laughs> we know they're expecting for you to take them to school. But um but yeah, that that also helped though being part of, of some type of a sports program. But we didn't have all the uh, Pop Warner football. We didn't have you know AYSO. We didn't have all the uh, the swimming, wrestling. We didn't have those programs there. It took somebody to take you outside of the the, the city, you know, to if you're going to be playing those type of sports. And again, I'm grateful that there was this uh, this older man, uh, Mr. Harmer. Irish man, he recruited like six or seven of us on the street for a soccer team for AYSO, but he would drive us, he would drive us out of the city to over to Glendale Burbank area. And that's where we would play AYSO. Um, and again, we were active kids coming from that neighborhood. You know, he had to stay there and referee after the game. You know, you volunteer as a coach and we would be up there at the schools on the roof and just, we call it let's go explore or <laughs> exploring. But um but we you know we we won the championship two years in a row. Um so you know and again there was another another um gentleman that another parent I should say that he recruited us for baseball, little league. Um and you know, so that also helped. That helped a lot just getting to to learn that teamwork, that discipline. But other than that, there wasn't too many other programs, you know, uh, basketball. There was really no uh, organized programs besides Little League. Well, I got one more question for you before we progress into your journey into the fire service. Okay. My observation as an English farm boy that moved to the States, became a firefighter, and then got to work in some pretty poor areas in some of the cities in the U.S., East Coast and West, um, 
was the impact of drug prohibition on the empowerment of gangs and you know the prostitution and the homelessness and then you know, the the uh, the violence at the border as well. My personal opinion is that the prohibition of drugs has created so much damage, so much violence, so much poverty, um, so many broken homes. When you know you're talking about coming from East LA and then you wore a uniform for a long time, and then fast forward to the last few years as this rhetoric about building walls to stop Mexicans from coming into the US. My perspective is, well, what have we done to the to Mexico to create that kind of violence that people are fleeing in the first place? And again, you look at the prohibition of drugs. We are the consumer and the bad people in countries south of us are um, creating a lot of trouble and crime and violence in their countries that people are trying to get away from. That is James Gearing's perspective. With your view on the streets that you grew up in, with your view of what you've seen in uniform, um, with the the discussion over immigration, especially from Mexico, what is your perception of the impact of, of drugs, the prohibition of drugs on some of the things that you've seen with your own eyes in your career? Well, I believe the, the, the impact on communities, uh, it really, it, it ruins, it, it ruins, uh, it ruins the community. Okay. That's, that's one thing. Um, Cause I've, I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, people growing up that were, either athletes uh, or, you know, solid people. And as soon as they get involved with any type of drugs, it just it changes the person uh, individually. So I believe a lot of the drugs that are coming into the United States, it's it's ruining them. It's ruining the, the, the community. It's ruining the states. It's uh, I mean, that that's that's I think the number one denominator of changing a community, changing uh, individuals. Um, I think it has a large impact. I mean, I've seen it growing up. I've seen it, uh, you know, in uniform that, uh, you know, uh, I, I, again, again, James, you know, I grew up in that environment, but I, I was never one to uh, get addicted to drugs. Uh, I seen it. I was exposed to it all around me. Um, but for some reason I had, uh, I was a, uh, uh, I became an individual where I didn't allow anybody to really push me or tell me, uh, you know, take some drugs or do this. Uh, I think, uh, I think growing up with this older generation as a, as a young kid, I had this, uh, that value or that courage that, uh, you know, if I, if I even sensed somebody telling me or pushing me to drink or do drugs, I would call them on it. Like, Hey, I already told you once. Don't offer it to me again, because then I would be like, or we're going to, I'm going to fight with you. So they, they understood that, hey, you are, they offer it once. Uh, but I've seen a lot of people that were top athletes, uh, baseball, football, uh, growing up with them. I seen them go down the wrong path as soon as they got addicted to drugs. Uh, they, some of them became homeless. And these, and these individuals that I grew up with were, like top athletes, they were going to play semi-pro. Um, and, and as soon as they got involved with drugs, some of them became homeless. So that's the impact that there's so many homeless now. And people really don't understand. A lot of the individuals in, in uniform, I see homeless. I've always been the type of person, if I see somebody that's, you know, if I can help them, I can feed them. Um, I usually, <laughs> I carry in my in my car 
Uh, during the winter time, I carry a sweatshirt and a beanie. I had several sets of them. And if I see somebody, I can, you know, hey, I'm going to give that to someone. Nobody needs to be cold. Nobody. I mean, I have, I have sneakers um, because they're all good stuff. I don't like to just throw it away. But I understand coming from that background that some of these individuals just uh, got connected with the wrong people, wrong path, got on drugs. But they people don't really understand who were they before? Why did they get like that? So I think I still have that that uh, that the heart to help others when I see them. Um, so I think that impact with the drugs really just ruins uh, ruins the communities, ruins the, the state, ruins uh, everybody. I mean, there's people that, like I mentioned, that were so solid. Nowadays, you can't trust as soon as someone's on drugs, you can't trust these individuals anymore. They become a totally different person. I've had family, kids, young kids that were group. Their parents moved them out of the out of the the, the neighborhood, bought a nice house out in in a nice community, Whittier Rose Hills up there. For some reason, these individuals were spoiled growing up, and they came back, got connected with drugs. They start, you know, doing bad things, and it changed them. They come go to jail, go to prison, and I think that's just part of the system now, you know. Uh, it's a revolving door. It becomes a revolving door. So I think the the drugs coming into the United States has a huge impact on individuals, on on the way uh, our system works, on our economy, on everything. Yeah. Well, and the the ripple effect of that, what I saw was, you know, the gangs, the the, the trouble at the borders. If you didn't have a prohibition, because obviously, there's a mental health crisis. That's why these people. Are taking these drugs they're trying to escape the same way people do with food and social media and gambling and every other alcohol the you know the totally legal socially acceptable negative coping mechanism but the what i saw with my eyes is i don't think there would be many gangs if you didn't have the ability to sling dope how are you going to make your money the a lot of people that like you said were athletes would probably stay athletes they wouldn't have people on their corner you know constantly offering it to them so taking the addicts and making them medical patients rather than criminals to me is the way that we solve it you cut the head off the snake you take away the demand for illegal drugs you would have a positive impact on the country of mexico you'd have less people trying to flee their country and you certainly would have a hugely diminished gang activity in my opinion because if you can't make money selling dope then you know money equals power Right. No, I agree with you. I agree. That's that's so true. But yeah, it it, it has an, a huge impact on on everything. Gangs, uh, money, like you said. Uh, uh, you know, and that's 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 something that's we have no control of. Yeah. Well, I plan on being part of the <laughs> solution because I'm, you know, as you see, I mean, the number of teenagers that I've pulled a yellow sheet over, you know, that died for their apartment complex. It's it's you know. Those don't make oh, the yeah, news. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean? And and I and I do a lot of mentoring, James, also for for uh, uh, at risk youth. You know, I, I've I've mentored a lot of the these uh, youth. Um, um, I can relate to them, so they come to me, and and I feed them nothing but positive, um, you know, information, or, or try to keep them on the positive uh, uh, path. Um, I explain, I break it down to them. And for you know they they can relate to me, so they they get connected with me, and and I have an individual right now that I've been mentoring, and he was really going down the wrong path, and uh, now he's about to graduate next this month, 
and I will be there to attend his graduation. He has two jobs. I mean, uh, and he was really going down the wrong path. And, and you know, I, I feel good that I'm able to I tell him, you're the one doing it. I'm not doing anything. You're the one doing it. I give you the guidance, you know, what you should be doing. And um, but um, yeah, and, and I wish there would be more because, yes, uh, you have to you have to reach out to them while they're really young. Um, and I feel that, you know, there has to be programs there have to, has to be activities for them. At one point, I was thinking about opening up my own business and it was going to be called Sweet Lou's Tough Love Camp. And <laughs> um, and it was not for, you know, grown adults. It was just going to be for maybe between 10 and 16 or anywhere 12. 11. And I just wanted to show them basic household skills, basic uh, uh, essentials, um, certain values. Uh, and, and I guarantee you there's so many because people would want to come drop off, you know, family would drop off their their nephews or their nieces, you know, in the summer with me because I'm putting them to work. You know, I'm putting them to learn something. I'm not, you know, and I guarantee you, you know, they they don't have that. Once they get that type of guidance, get them programmed that way, um, it changes an individual. I think that's one way that we could help society is having those type of mentors, having those type of uh, of role models and guidance. A lot of that's what we're missing. I mean, we're talking about the drugs. Some of these individuals come out, you know, they're single. Uh, they have a single parents are uh, they're working, you know, and the kids looking for some type of activity to to stay busy. Um, and uh, and that's what I think. That's where we're lacking, and we're lacking leadership in America in general. Okay, we're lacking leadership. But just like you said, James, you know, you try to do the best that you can. And I, I, I do the best that I can. You don't know how many individuals um, call me and I go out of my way for them just to help them in every which way I can. Uh, sometimes it's overwhelming where people got to you know, tell me, hey, you need to learn to say no. And then well, it's hard for me to say no to people, especially if it's a if it's a youth that's reaching out Um no, he, he's reaching out for a reason. He's seeking and knocking for a reason. And, uh, and that's what I, I believe that, you know, I'm here for that reason. That, that believe, I still believe God still has me here for, for, for a reason. You know, he took one hand away from me. I think he said, I just got to slow this cat down and take one hand away. But uh, I still can use him out here. <laughs> well, it mirrors um, one of my friends. I talk about this a lot on the show because it's it's amazing that he started a mentorship program. He's a firefighter here in in Ocala, and he started a mentorship program where all these kids have to do is physically show up to this central fire station. They will provide the gear, the training. There are scholarships for our local fire academy, and our, we're lucky our state academy is here in in our town. There are departments on the other side of that academy begging for you know new recruits. But what he did is he removed that barrier to entry. He went into these underserved communities and said, look, here's what we do. You physically just have to show up and we will guide you through. And what I love about that, when you hear the diversity conversation, there are great approaches to it, which I would argue this is, and there are terrible ones, which is go out and get me 40 English people. We don't have enough English people. We need to fill the English quota. You know what I mean? And you end up with 40 people. Some might be rock stars. Some might be awful firefighters. So I love this idea of mentorship, not only to firstly find the great candidates. Secondly, 
the other candidates go, oh, okay, I thought I wanted to be a firefighter, but actually I don't like this very much. Strike it off my list. Another win. But thirdly, to to empower children in areas that maybe never thought about the fire service before and they see someone, maybe it's the same color or same gender or whatever it is, and go, wow, I, I can do this. And all of a sudden, that person that was trying to lead them down the bad path, that's countered with someone from police, fire, you know, whatever it is in this mentorship program that empowers them to realize that they can actually control their own destiny and go into a profession that they would be proud to be wearing the uniform for. You know, I think that's uh, that's uh, pretty much where I, when I became the uh, uh, ran the Explorer program, James. Um, I did it for ten years, and the discipline uh, that they learned, uh, the self esteem, their self confidence. I mean, just watching these individuals grow, they would come in. You know, of course, their mom or somebody, was there. they're looking for their kid to do something. But they brought them by the fire station. And uh, myself and another individual, Sergio, we decided to run this program. But I wouldn't just sit there and talk about the firefighting essentials. I would explain to them so many other, teach them so many other values that it, they become a different person. I would prepare them for interviews for their for the summer job, you know, so how to have an opening statement, closing statement. I mean, everything's related to the fire service, but but at the same time, uh, you know, these individuals will come in. They don't know how to look at you in the face when they shake your hand. They looking down. I had to go, hey, look up at me. That was pretty hard. I was pretty hardcore. You know, people know I'm old school, and, but these individuals loved loved it. They loved what they got out of the program. Where till this day, people are still asking, "Hey, do you guys still do you still have that explore program?" When these individuals were going out to an uh, interview, they were applying. You know, once they were eighteen years old, nineteen, and they were applying at uh, at uh, of some of the neighboring agencies. During their interview, they would state that you know they they're part of my my explore program. So, not to brag or anything, but they know that I was teaching them discipline. Uh, I was probably one of the biggest advocates for training in my department. Um, so I have videos. I have so many videos and pictures of me training these these explorers. And I was pretty hard on them. But it became pretty much a recruit for all the other agencies, you know, because I was I was doing it on my own time. I never really got paid for it. And I wasn't asking for any money. But it got to the point where anybody else that would want to help, everybody wants to get paid now, you know, overtime hours and so on. Um but they became it became more of a, a recruiting school. All the other agencies were were hiring these individuals from from our program, because in our department, you know, you're required to be a, a paramedic, firefighter paramedic, to get hired. So these other neighboring agencies that don't require you to be a paramedic was just recruiting recruiting from our explorer program, um, and, and I and that's good. I mean, I tell them, hey, that's your goal is to get on with a fire department. That's that's the whole principle of it, but. I, I see some of these individuals. I mean, they've invited me to their, you know, their graduation, whatever agency they hired. They've asked me to pin pin their badge for them. Um, so obviously that worked. Obviously, whatever I was doing worked. I would tell them, listen, you guys, you're you're required to do so many ride-alongs here. When you come here, you're helping wash the fire engines. You're helping throw the trash away, clean the restrooms, 
all the basic duties of a firefighter, correct? Yes. Why aren't you doing that at home for your parents? So next week, each one of you is going to share a story that you've done at home for your parents without them asking you to do it. Wash their car. They bring you to the meetings, right? Yes. Wash their car. Okay. Throw the trash away. Load the dishwasher. Unload it. Takes, what, two, three, four minutes to do something like that? So do it at home. And each one of you, which is going to share every week when we have our meetings, what you did at home for your parents. Uh, you know, that's that's what I was, you know, um, teaching these individuals is is those type of values, those that type of respect, you know, um, and preparing them for the future, preparing them for their interviews. And, you know, of course, they're so scared and shy to get up there in front. But when they left the program, you can see the difference on these individuals. You know, even some of the young girls that joined the program, um, you can see their self-esteem has changed. I mean, they were walking around the station now, you know, proud and with the uniform on. And, and you know what? That's I did everything I can. So I feel like I'm doing my part. I need you to do your part. Love that. Well, even when you said with the eye contact, you know, it was actually one of my dad's best friend's wives that taught me how to shake a hand properly. And she was saying, no, you squeeze, you know, you're not trying to win the grip contest, but it's not like a wet fish. She's got to look me in the eyes. And that's what we've got to understand. This whole kids today participation trophy, all this kind of negative rhetoric that's thrown around, usually by guys that aren't in great shape and are probably turds in the fire ground. You know, that that's not raising someone up. You know, we think about this. We have kids that graduated high school during covid that came into a, uh, an, an environment where there were zero jobs and you were given handouts. And now we're trying to educate and pull these kids back into momentum to start enter a profession. They've, their world has been a device. I mean, you know, a lot of these parents, I cringe when you see these like infants with, with tablets strapped to their, their baby carriage. And now you're asking them to look me in the eyes and communicate, you know. So unless we show them how to do it, someone showed me how to strip a chainsaw. I grew up on a farm. I wasn't familiar with a saw specifically. Someone showed me how to do that. You know, someone showed me how to, um, you know, start a K-12 in, you know, the right way and the wrong way. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? right. But, but, so, but you're right. But nobody's doing that, uh, you know, outside of the fire service. You know, nobody's spending that kind of time. I've set tools on a table and I have them name every tool. I mean, these individuals don't know. I've, even now, I've seen some um, some uh, firefighters that we've hired, James, and they don't know how to swing a sledgehammer. Um, I've watched an individual tell me, you know, on on on, uh, on Sundays, we you know, we mow the lawn out front. And I was watching this individual and he was walking around the lawnmower like he didn't know where to start it, how to start the lawnmower. And it's not his fault. He's never been taught. You know, he's never been taught to do that. Um, so, you know, it's like he said, it's they're 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 born, they're attached to their tablets, their phones and and their video games. And I tell them, hey, there's nothing wrong with learning that. But they're not managing it. They're just uh, they're addicted. They It's an addiction. And they don't realize that that is an addiction. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, James, I, I, I try to do my part. I know uh, some 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 of the, the younger generation, uh, you know, my son, my son, he was one of our explorers. When he was like 15, I, I signed him up and and I used to tell my guys, hey, get on him. I mean, like, you get on him. I want, you know, 
because he played football. My son, you know, he's used to being coached. He wrestled and so on. And, um, you know, he played Pop Warner until he was a kid. He went on to play at USC. But but when he was a, a, a joined our Explorer program, um, you know, we were on his butt. I remember when he got hired over at In-N-Out Burger, you know, when he was, uh, you know, going to college and he had that part-time job. He was in there and he would be calling out the number and he's screaming it out. Number five. They had to tell him, hey, tone it down. <laughs> so they put up, and I'm telling him, why are you? He goes, because that's what you guys taught us to speak loud and, you know, as explorers and, you know, and so on. I said, yeah, but you're scaring the people away, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's what, you know, we, we, we want to do for, for the, for the young generation. I mean, some of them, it's a little too late because they grew up, but, uh, but yeah, if I can catch them young and they're willing to, to work hard and I'm there for them. Beautiful. Well, tying that all into your journey again, you're, you know, this young uh, schoolboy in East LA, you know, you're getting pulled one direction. Firstly, what was your, what occupation were you dreaming of becoming? And if that wasn't the fire service, what was the influence that, that took you into uniform? Um, I, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I said, you know, I, I learned to work very young. Um, you know, again, my parents, my dad, he didn't throw anything away. You know, he had a coffee can with nails that were, and that my job was to straighten them out. You know, I don't know how many times you bang your thumb and so on. Now's when I wish I probably had the, the prosthetic to hold the <laughs> nail, you know, cause I hit my thumb so many times, but you know, we didn't waste anything. And so I started working really young. As soon as I was able to, I was, I was not even in high school yet. It was the summer going into high school. I remember I went and tried to get a work permit because they said you need a work permit to have a part-time job. Um, I'm thinking I was 14, you were able to get a work permit. But I, you know, I, I found a job right there down, you know, in the, in the neighborhood at a at a at a wood shop, and they, they pretty much just had me blowing all the sawdust when they were all done for the day. Uh, you know, did that, and then I was. Um, a bagger bagging at the grocery store. Well, I'll take it further back. I did the newspaper route. And that must have been maybe 10 years old. It was the Herald Examiner in Los Angeles. And, you know, they would drop off the newspapers and you fold them, you put the rubber band on there, I had the bags on the on the bike. And, you know, so that's, that's how far back I, I remember that job. But uh, again, going back when I was in high school, I was uh, uh, bagging at the grocery store. I was a bagger. And it was at a grocery store where, where it was really busy. It was one of those grocery stores where everybody comes for the produce because it's cheaper there. And um, But I, I worked there and and I did carpet cleaning. I was a helper for one of my buddies. And I did that after school because he worked from four to midnight. Um, so I was always working. But working at the, at the grocery store is where I, is where I met the firefighters. I think that's what introduced me to the job. Uh, you know, watching the program emergency back in the day, there was two firefighter program, fire service program and police, Adam 12 and emergency. And they were back to back. So I think watching the emergency was one of the, one of the, the series that inspired me, you know, the job, the action that was going on. I think that was kind of connected with the action that was going on in our neighborhood um, but I think I didn't really have n nothing. I didn't grow up 
with parents that were already in the fire service or first responders. We didn't have that, you know, growing up. So you no, know, no guidance on how to, to go about getting a job like that. So I think uh, when I built the courage to ask the firefighters coming through my line, as I bagged their groceries, you know, that was probably my first step to, you know, joining the fire service. They asked me to come to the firehouse and the firehouse was right around the corner from there. Station 50 in Los Angeles. And uh, I went over to visit the, the firehouse. And first thing, you know, they said is you need a high school diploma. That's all you really need, you know, to, to apply. So that was my first goal is to get that high school diploma. And it was rough, you know. You know, I was a very, uh, in school, I was uh, very knowledgeable. My teachers really, really enjoyed me in class because I, I would do my homework before I leave the class just because I knew I would be on the streets after class. I don't have time to do homework. So I would do the homework real quick. And, uh, uh, but I was really active. There was always fighting going on in school. I mean, that was to me, uh, to me, that was no big thing. Fighting with someone was not a big thing because I used to balk. So I didn't really mind it. Uh, but it wasn't good for, for my resume, I should say. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, you know, I was really well respected there because I, I went to class, never missed class. Um, so my teachers always supported me as far as that goes. But I think that's where I first got introduced to, to the fire service is, uh, is, uh, working at the grocery store and watching the firefighters come in, um, you know, uh, buy their groceries. And I finally had the courage to, to ask them, you know, you know, what do I have to do or how do I get into the fire service? And I went and visit the firehouse and, you know, they pretty much laid some guidelines down for me. Well, that speaks a lot about the particular crew that you interacted with as well, that we have the power to inspire a future generation or we completely, you know, act like horrible firefighters and dissuade someone from going a route. And you never would have had this amazing career had the first firefighters that you met being a bunch of dicks. <laughs> You're right, because uh, a lot of times they stereotype individuals. You know, uh, I can tell you at the at the firehouse, you know, when I was uh, there at the fire station, you know, well, I think I was still a firefighter. Um, there was an individual that moved moved to one of the the moved over here, and and he was going to school at one of the local schools there, and and then he went to his counselor and told his counselor he wants to be in the fire department, he wants to you know work as a firefighter. Well, they sent him to the fire station, and. Whoever he made contact with, you know, pretty much stereotyped him and said, "Oh, you need to come by when Lewis is here and talk to him." Um, just by, you know, so by the way he looked or dressed, and uh, he came by and talked to me, and I had a long talk with him. And I, I mean, I can relate to the individual. I told him, "I'm not, I'm not telling you how to dress." I said, "But I'm going to tell you, you know, perception is everything." And and I just ran it down to him. I said, I never had that type of guidance. I had learned the hard way. Um, so I'm going to run it down to you. And you know what? This guy's life got turned around. He was still in high school. I signed him up at the community college. He completed his EMT while he was still in high school senior. I mean, he would come and show me his grades. Um, I set him up with the uh, interview with Cal Fire. I, I loaned him some you know, shirt and tie and clothes, because he didn't have much. He moved up here because his girlfriend's family uh, lived here and so on. You can tell he grew up in the streets down in Los Angeles. But, uh, you know, and then when he left back, he called me and texted me, uh, called me and said, uh, 
You know, he's uh, at the Rio Hondo Fire Academy and he's working for UPS. You know, so, you know, so like I said, there's sometimes, like you said, you might come to the fire station and it might be some guys that just stereotype someone and, and brush him off because they've done that to me as an individual, you know, stopping by asking if they're hiring. They would tell me they're not hiring at the time. And I find out later they're hiring, you know, so, you know, I, I can relate to the, to all that adversity, James. I've, I've dealt with adversity all my life. Absolutely. Well, it's an important takeaway for all of us. You know, you never know who you're going to inspire. Well, you talked about Rio Hondo. Your journey, did it begin with a fire academy or you hired as a non-cert program? No, I, um, so I'll, I'll tell you how, how my journey began. So I, you know, I find out, I talk to the firefighters, they tell me all you need is a high school diploma. Cool. I'm thinking, okay, high school diploma, that's all I need. Okay, I'll get my high school diploma. Uh, I applied for LA City Fire Department. And uh, back then, you know, it's always a long process with big cities. But I uh, attended my first fire science class at East Los Angeles College uh, on Eastern at LA County's district up on uh, on Eastern. They got their, their, their station up there. So that was my first fire science class. And during that time when I was attending the class, I went in the break room and I seen the flyer they had up there at, you know, how to become a seasonal firefighter with, again, back then, California Department of Forestry. So that interests me. Okay, let me see how can I apply for this. And I applied at about six different counties, Riverside, San Bernardino. Uh, then I started heading up north a little bit, you know, Fresno, Tulare. They didn't even know where this, uh, where Tulare was at, or, you know. Uh, Humboldt County. I went way up north. I just applied at all these different counties. So there I go, James, to my interviews. I, you know, I got my my interview date. I went to Riverside, twenty minute interview. Went to San Bernardino. Went, you know, hit all the hit all the all the the, the counties. Um, and I went to Humboldt County. I took the Greyhound. I'm I'm eight, nineteen years old. 19, 19, I, I took the Greyhound bus. It took me like 16 hours to get to uh, Eureka or Fortuna, somewhere up there. Um, all by myself, you know, and I get to uh, to Eureka. And I uh, go into a Denny's. I walk from the bus station over to the Denny's and go inside the Denny's and, and change, go in the restroom. It's like seven in the morning or eight in the morning. Um, I go in there and change, clean up, shirt and tie, short haircut, call for a taxi. I'm thinking big city. I call for a taxi. A taxi picks me up and takes me down the street. And I, I walk inside there and it's pretty much the locals, uh, locals there, candidates, you know, jeans, boots, Western shirt, you know, they're, waiting for the interview. And here I come in with the all suit and tie and flat top haircut. And so I sit down and, uh, you know, the, the, the interviewing the panel after a couple, you know, after a while they came out and said, Hey, everybody, uh, you know, we're going to go to lunch. So we'll see you after lunch and so on. I had to actually walk up to them and tell them, Hey, listen, my bus leaves in an hour. Oh, okay. You're you're the kid that from Southern California. Come on in, let's interview you. 
So they interviewed me, 20 minute interview. I'm back on the on the ground, 16 hours back. Um, and then uh, I arrived and so on. About, I don't know, maybe two weeks, three weeks later, um, they, they, they send me the letter, they call me. Uh, I scored a 100 with Riverside's interview. Uh, you know, I scored high. I'm thinking for sure Riverside's gonna pick me up. I scored a 100. Um, anyhow, they never called me for the job. Who calls me for the job? Humboldt County. So they called on Thursday and they said, if you want the job, be here on Monday for the academy. So there I go, James, 16 hours back. Um, to went to a little place called Garberville. That's where they have their academy. And from there, you know, I was fortunate that uh, they assigned me to Crescent City Fire Station, Station 1, right on the Oregon border. Uh, I was fortunate that they, uh, they assigned me to a captain, Captain Prouty, and he had just finished working at the, at the fire camp, the inmate fire camp. So they assigned me to, to him and, you know, he actually, I didn't have a vehicle. So he actually drove me all the way up to, to, uh, Crescent City. So we got to know each other pretty well. I think he can relate to me at that time coming from Los Angeles and him working in the camps. I think he was able to relate with, you know, to my, my, uh, lifestyle at the time. And we hit it off really well. And I lived at the fire station, you know, pretty much, uh, I didn't, I didn't have a car. So on my days off, I would take a walk, go to the gym, work out, you know, just stay busy. I'll try to leave the fire station for the day, come back in the, you know, later on in the evening. It's right on the coastline there. And then so I got to know some of the guys and I was spending the night at their, at their house and so on. Um, the guys loved me up there. They wanted me to come back the following season. While I was up there, Tulare County called me for the job. I felt I was already stable. I didn't want to make the move. Uh, I finished off my season. And from there, I went to the Allen Hancock Fire Academy in San Maria. After the season ended, I was uh, I, I ended up uh, going to the academy in Santa Maria, Allen Hancock College. Um, again, 32 students. Uh, I was probably uh, the, the only... Uh, I don't know, Latino, Mexican-American, whatever you want to call it, in the class. It was all white students, you know, so I, I stood out, but uh, I knew how to work. They cannot work me, James. You know, I, they cannot work me, but I could tell by then, everybody, all the individuals, they already have family in the fire service. Um, so it was pretty rough, you know, at that time, because I was living with a friend that, you know, that I grew up with. He's much older. Like I said, I grew up with older individuals, but he was much older and he had an apartment there in, in Santa Maria. So I lived with him during my my uh, my academy time. Um, you know, graduated from the academy and uh, came back following season with Tulare County. And worked for, with Cal Fire, you know, or CDF back then. And I put three seasons in uh, over here in Tulare County. I was still testing everywhere, you know, everywhere. LA City, uh, you know, Santa Monica, Burbank, everyone who was hiring, I was testing. And, you know, back then the, it was so competitive. You had to wait in line overnight because they would only hand out applications to the first 200 applicants. So I would wait overnight. 
uh, on the sidewalk or whatever it took to be one of the 200s to get an application. Um, I, I went through all the written exams, physical agilities, um, passed all that. And I always made it to the interview portion. I don't think maybe back then I didn't have much uh, much experience. I only had the EMT Firefighter One Academy. That's all I had under my belt. Um, but uh, I was young, you know, and and uh, Tulare City I, I was hiring when I was working as a seasonal, uh, and I applied with them. They called me for the job maybe about a year and a half later. I had just got back from an interview with Santa Monica at the time, but they called me for the job, and I. You know, I, I, they asked me if I'm still interested in the job. And I said, yes. I mean, to me, that's my goal is to become a full-time career firefighter. I was a seasonal. Um, so, so I got hired with, with uh, Tulare City and, and the rest was history there. You know, I put uh, 30 years in there. And, uh, and it, it was, it was a, a great, great career, great job. Uh, I was able to raise my kids here. Um, you know, and, and they have, you know, when I first came up here, I was just grateful for all the programs they have in this area. I mean, every anything you can think of, they have it. Whether it was wrestling, swimming, you know, Pop Warner football, NJV, because I put my kids through all those sports and I coached the majority of the time. Um, so everything, um, you know, I was just, you know, I, I remember just uh, when I was in, in hired with Tulare City when I was new, I would see all the individuals at lunchtime walking around to the across the street to the to, to the um, fast food places or places to eat. And I would ask the guys, "Why is everybody out of school? Oh, you can walk and go get lunch." I'm like, "Really? Where I come from, you know, it, it's you got to jump the fence and make an escape and go get something to eat and get lucky. You don't get, you know, you're lucky if you don't get caught, picked up by the police department and so on. No, here it's all open campus. I'm like, wow." I'm sure that's going to change someday, and it's, you know, it all everything has changed by now. But, but I was really uh, uh, just amazed on on what they had, you know, the programs and everything that they had for individuals here. So, so this is where I stayed. I applied for LA City, uh, you know, later on when I was a firefighter, uh, and uh, I scored a 100. Went through their whole process, psych test. Uh, you know, I scored a 100 on their interview. Um, but they were asking for a residency, proof of residency at that time. And I used my mom's address to apply. But I, when I got to the interview, I, you know, I told my work for the city of Tulare. Um, I said, and that's where I also reside. And I'm not going to lie through the process. So that was that. And I think it was just meant for me to stay here. Because, it, you know, we, we've done great. We've done a great job here and, you know, had a lot, a lot to had a lot to offer here. Well, firstly, I mean, this this is an amazing story in the introduction to the fire service. Like yourself, I had no first responder or military family. Um, yeah, my my granddad and my great uncle were in World War Two, but I mean, aside from that, I went through blind. You know what I mean? So it is a kind of interesting journey of discovery. Like, oh, you know, you clean toilets and you know you wash rigs because you go to the fire academy and. My fire academy itself didn't really lay out what it was. Luckily, my first department, Hialeah, gave us a great kind of orientation on here's what you'll actually be doing. <laughs> it's not Ladder right. 49. You know, there's more stuff to it than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but it is interesting because you do, I mean, you're just totally going in blind and you're learning on the fly. I mean, even my fire academy in Florida, 
I work for Hialeah, which is Miami area, and then barely a year, not quite a year, I go to Anaheim, California, and I'm hired. And kind of like yourself, I totally relate to your story because I flew 2,500 miles to test, 2,500 miles to do the physical test, 2,500 miles to do the interview um, there and back. And, uh, you know, so I'm sure they looked at it and go, well, this guy's definitely committed. <laughs> He's got that in his favor. Well, true, true. But um, but then you go and it's like West, Co- West Coast ladder throws. And I'm uh, my, my learning curve is like a vertical line. I'm like, if I don't get this, I'm going to get cut super fast. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting when you have that connection from the beginning in the fire service, you're around a lot of people, you know, you should be well prepared. But for all of us that don't have that kind of generational fire service in our family, um, it's, it's quite the journey of exploration for a young candidate. Yes, and that's, I think that's, uh, that's what I, I try to, to provide that for individuals, you know, especially even now when I'm teaching the intro class. I teach an introduction to the fire service at the college. Um, it's it's a different it's a little different generation now they're they don't have i would say the majority of them do not have the drive to uh or they're not hungry james um they're just say hey, if it comes it comes if it doesn't it doesn't but i remember when i first got hired up there in crescent city as a seasonal now i now i can recall what they were doing but they uh they said uh they asked me you know we're gonna plant we're gonna install a generator and they took me behind the station. So I need you to dig a hole two by two by two. So we're going to drop the generator in there. Not a problem. I, I, I dug it up. James, I don't know. It was pretty quick. I measured it with the measuring tape. I think I uh, I surprised them or uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I, they were just surprised that that maybe they didn't think that I know how to work with tools, you know, coming from the, the streets of Los Angeles, they probably think this individual probably never held a shovel before or a hammer. Um, so I, I think when I dug it up and called them back and said, it's, it's ready to go. And I may, I had the measuring tape in my hand, kind of measured it for them. And, uh, you know, I think I earned my respect with, with all the captains there uh, everywhere that I've worked, you know, due to the respect and the work ethics and so on. Um, I was one of the only individuals that was going out there uh, after five o'clock and, and going in the garage and, and working out with whatever weights we had there. But I would jog. It was a big area. I would jog around the, you know, around the station there. Um, I think that was already, I was already programmed that way. I, I had that uh, um, self-discipline to do that. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's to me, that's, that's why I love to, to sit with some of the youth and give them that guidance that they need um, because nobody else is going to do that anymore. You know, nobody really has the time to do anything for free. Nobody wants to do anything for free anymore. Um, you know, even in the fire department nowadays, I, you know, I would hang out over there and and, and train, you know, if, they, if I hear that they're doing a training drill on my day off, I'm there. Um, you know, uh, now it's different. It's nobody's there for, for unless they're getting paid overtime or whatever reason it is. Um, you know, I recall, uh, you know, after when you're getting off of work, you sit there and have a cup of coffee with the guys, you probably sit there another half hour just talking. Um, and now 
Uh, I, I recall individuals uh, putting in for overtime, 15 minutes overtime, because they were waiting for their relief to come from the other station. And you know, they're putting in for their 15 minutes of overtime. And by now I'm, the, I'm the, a chief officer. And I said, hey, I had a talk with him. I'm good with that. That's your right. You know, I'll give you the 15 minutes of overtime. But from now on, you have to stay here till 8 o'clock. Don't leave at 7.15. Don't leave at 7.30. You have to stay here till 8 o'clock because we're paying. So it's what What do you want to play? You let me know. I'm willing to go. I'm, it's your right. I'm willing to do that. But you stay. Oh, well, that changed really quick. You know, it's like, come on, guys. Really? You're waiting for your other guy to get here from the other station across town? You're putting in for 15. You were here 10 minutes, but you won't put in for 15 minutes of overtime? You know, that's just the, the different mentality nowadays. Um, and it, it's changed so much. You know that, James. You would sit around at the fire station and watch a uh, watch TV or watch a TV uh, program or series, and everybody's in there. Now you walk into any station or anywhere, and every individual's on their phone. Uh, you know, everyone's isolating themselves and so on. That's just the way, it's, you know, society has made it for everybody, but... So it's 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 totally changed now. It's uh it's it's different, you know, everywhere, nationwide, not just the fire service, just in general. Um, I think it's changed. Well, this is a conversation I have. I always throw the American fire helmet in as a sacrificial lamb in this conversation because if you hear people talking about that, it's like, oh, it's tradition. It's like, no, that's not tradition, that's history. That is a helmet that arguably we should have really progressed away from by now, but we're hanging on to it because we have wet dreams about Kurt Russell in backdraft. That's the right. real reason. But tradition is the firehouse kitchen table. Tradition is all hands on the rig. Tradition is playing a sport or working out together. Those are tradition as you know, selflessness and family and tribe and service. And one of the things that I loved about Anaheim when I was there, and they Again, that was back when you had to fight for a position. I, I tested when I flew all that way um, against a thousand candidates, all that were certified firefighters, EMTs and or paramedics, uh, history ambulance operators, volunteer firefighters. I mean, you name it. Their resume was stacked and you're, you're competing against these incredible men and women. Then their probation was a year and usually through attrition, they would lose 25% of each new hire class. So they weren't afraid to let you go if you didn't reach their bar. So by the time you get through that year and you're kind of welcomed and you've gone through this crucible, you had some pretty phenomenal human beings from firefighter through to chief and everywhere in between. And that old school mentality was there, that tradition was there. And one of the things I loved, and it's contrast against where I've worked recently, you would show up, take their gear off the rig, put your gear on, Check everything out because you knew that they got their ass handed to them and you let them sleep. Com contrary to that, my last place, lights would come on. No one gave a shit whether you'd been up all night because you had to physically come out and take your gear off. Two, I mean, a slight difference, but a massive difference when you look at it. One is a guy coming in early, making sure that that person they're relieving doesn't get hit with that call 30 minutes before they're supposed to go home to their kids. The other one is the piece of shit that sits in the car park till one minute before their quote unquote shift change, and then that fucker walks in. Yep. So, yep, I, I I dealt with all that, James. I mean, you know that we all relate to that. Um, 
Um, but again, I was, uh, uh, I was always like hundred percent, you know, hundred percent dedicated and loyal to my, my department. Um, that's just, you know, it, you don't, it's rare now. Like I said, it's very, there's only certain individuals and it's, and it's, it sucks. It sucks. It makes me sad now. It doesn't even make me, doesn't even piss me off anymore. It's the stories that I'm hearing now, it just makes me sad about what I hear now, you know, and, uh, but yeah, it, you know, we have people that show up their whole career a minute before eight o'clock. I'm going, what, what, what's wrong with this picture here? You know, that's not what you said when you, we interviewed you, you know, and, you know, but, you know, there's so many rights nowadays that you, you know, everybody's so cautious about it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's changed a lot. And, uh, and, and I'm fortunate. I'm grateful that I grew up in that era. I'm really, you know, you know, some people, yeah, you're, you're old school. I said, old school gets the job done. I'll tell you right now. I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate and I'm grateful for it. Uh, you know, that, that I was brought up in that era and, and learned what I had to learn, but, uh, you know, and, and, and now I, like I said, I'm, now I'm, I'm willing to, to help out these individuals. Um, and I, I'll share a couple of stories later on about individuals that I'm, I'm, I'm still helping now, you know, uh, that's, it, it, that's not going to end. I, you know, I think that's, that's who I am and I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to help other individuals that are willing to help themselves. And I make it clear with them. So I'm like, I can't do it for you. I can guide you and help you, but you got to put the work in. I said, I still get up. I've been retired. And I don't think I've slept in yet, James. And, uh, I still get up and I go to the gym, you know, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. That's just my lifestyle, and I, I and I want to keep it that way. I said, "That's I got to take care of me, not just physically, but it helps me mentally." And that's the one thing I got to tell you. I'm not here. I'm not trying to be a, a bodybuilder or any of that stuff, but it helps me mentally. That's my one of my outlets. You know, self care. That's one of my outlets for is 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 working out. You know, it's you know it's 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 one thing that that helps me. Everybody has their own outlet, and that's fine. Um, I got a friend of mine that we retired together and, you know, I, I go to his house. He doesn't answer his phone. It's like 730. And he's like, hey, I said, hey, what time do you retirees wake up? He said, don't call me till after nine o'clock. I'm like, how many are driving with a cup of coffee at 730? Hoping you come on, have a cup of coffee with me. You know, I said, and, and everybody knows I've always been that way. Um, I'm the first one up, last one down, James. That's how, that's the way I've always been. You know, even as a captain. Uh, and I was a captain for 10, 12 years. And, and, you know, I, I did my, I'm the last one down. I do my walk around with my guys, make sure everybody's down. And that's just who I have always been, you know, but, uh, I'm still, I'm still, uh, still hooking it up as I call it, still hooking it up, you know? <laughs> Well, speaking of that, so, I mean, we've spent, you know, over an hour just talking about mentorship and tradition and some of the other areas. So you're now working for your, you know, your, your what was your current department? Talk to me about January 26th, 2002. January 26th, 2002. I've been there for uh, 10 years now, you know, a little over 10 years or 10 years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm active uh firefighter uh all all about training uh, uh you know taking every class possible just driven driven firefighter uh 
you know, I, I, I at that time, before that date, you know, I was I was one of the individuals that brought the confined space uh, uh, program, confined space rescue program to our department. You know, I would go out, take a class and bring it back to our department and so on. I'll tell you about that, that era, that era later. But January 26, 2002, I'm, I'm at home and I have my kids and I'm I'm going through 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 some bad times. I'm going through divorce at that time, James and. And I got three three kids. I'm a single dad, and I got three kids. And uh, um, you know, I'm I, I know I had I don't know how I did it back then. You know, trying to go to work and and having the kids and dealing with all the, everything else that goes through when you're having going through those times. But I, I I leave to work that morning. I had you know babysitters, live-ins, live-outs. I did everything to try to keep keep my kids. Uh, Stable, I guess, you know, because they were all kid, they were young at the time. So I, I, I leave, I go off and I leave to work that morning. Um, it's winter time, cold, foggy morning here in the valley. And I stopped, I stopped at a, and bought a gift card for one of, one of my, one of my coworkers, one of my friends, uh, Nacho. He's the one I just told you that retired with me. I stopped because it was his birthday. So I stopped at, at, at Home Depot on the way in. I don't know if it was Home Base at the time or Home Depot. Bought a gift card and I get to work that morning. Um, you know, I come in and they they asked me, they assigned me to go across town to one of the other fire stations because somebody was going to be gone for half a day. So you know, I'm at I'm one of the, I'm at the bottom of the totem pole. I'm, I've been a, I was a firefighter. For ten years, and it was the small department. There was not much movement there. You know, we had a lot of older dinosaurs there that were just starting to retire at the time. But I was the, I was the young guy. I was the one doing everything for ten years. I was the rookie for ten years. We were a small department. We don't hire much, you know. And, and again, you fight for your positions. I get there, and they said, you know, you got to go across town. To, you know, someone's leaving for a half day, so I need you to go over there and work over there for the day. Okay, get back and get in my car and head over there. I'm there and, uh, you know, we're working in the, in the shop, cleaning up the engines and so on. Uh, and I get a, uh, we get a call, power lines down. Again, you know, we've gone to those, these calls forever. It's code two call. You know, somebody was cutting trees and snapped some power lines and there was some arcing going on and so on. We so we respond out there. We arrive um, at the at the scene, and we see power lines just laying across the roadway there. You can see where they cut trees down, and so so we stage. We park in front of the place. We tape the area off and uh, stand by for Edison Electric Southern California Edison. They're the electrical company out here. Well, as we're sitting there, there's a house next door to where to where all the uh, Trees were cut down, um, and the lady comes out of her house, and I kind of get out of the the fire engine or walk over and tell you know shelter in place as she's walking out. She's you know I walk up to see what she needs, and she's telling me in front of her house there's a tree there that has uh, this smoldering, a couple of limbs that were smoldering. So I said, oh, okay. I looked, I said, okay, go, go inside the house. I went back on the engine and, uh, uh, you know, I suit up, put my gloves, coat and helmet on and, 
and that last one of the other firefighters, you know, we walk over there and we're kind of just looking around at the tree and we don't see any power lines there. But then we see, I seen some, some, some smoldering going on. Cause I, again, it was winter time. Everything's really dry. So the, the power line was camouflaged into the branches. And then I reach up with my right hand and I break one of the limbs that was a uh, smoldering. I reach up with my left hand and grab another branch. At the same time, I grabbed the, the 12,000 volt uh, high voltage power line and I became stuck to it. Um, and I got lit up. I got lit up, James, like a, like a light bulb. I could actually see electricity, like a halo of electricity around my body. And I could hear that loud buzzing noise and it was shaking me really hard. Um, and everything crossed my mind. I'm gonna die if I don't get off of this wire. It actually crossed my mind, you know, my kids, everything. It's just, it's, it's weird how that happens, how everything just instantly crosses your mind. And I start pulling myself, you know, fighting it. I started fighting that. I remember, you know, yelling like, oh, fuck. And I'm, and I'm trying to pull myself off of the wire. Well, we had another, uh, our engineer uh, at the time, he was the acting captain, Mark. He, he runs up. Um, uh, and Mark's always been a, a aggressive. He's a farmer. He's a hardworking farmer, and he's an aggressive guy. And me and him were really close buddies. Um, he runs up and throws his clipboard, the metal clipboard, you know, that you gather information. He throws it. He said he threw it like a frisbee. Um, he threw it, and it hits the wire. And I think my weight and him hitting the wire helped me disconnect off of the wire. And I fell down, fell back. Um, I fell back because I had my helmet on. I think it like split the back of my head when I landed on my head and so on. Um, but he dragged me. I was disconnected, and then he dragged me away. He dragged me away. Um, so they dragged me away. I think when I landed, boom. I think I blacked out for like a second, just that impact, boom. Because I, I woke up and I looked around and I could see, you know, them running at me. I can see uh, one of the uh, captains running in um, with the with the AED at the time or the monitor. Yeah, I can't remember. And so they dragged me away and they're trying to pull my coat off of me. So I sat up a little bit and I kind of helped them pull my coat off because everyone's yanking on me and you know they pretty much thought I'm gonna die because they seen how lit up I was uh, the captain looked at my fingertips and I had some small holes on the fingertips of my right hand um, and he I remember him saying there's his exit wound um, they never stripped me down yet so they call, you know, they're calling for, for, for ambulance. Some of the guys told me that, you know, there was guys off duty that, that responded. Back then, you had these pagers at your house. We called them Plectron, that they would hit the alarm if there's a huge fire, they need assistance and you're, and you're off. So over the radio, everybody heard, you know, firefighter down. And, and everybody is saying, you're the last person I thought was going down because you were always training and, you know, safety. Um, so they, the, I remember the captain saying, there's his exit wound there, and they lay me down. 
I'm still talking, James. I'm talking the whole time. I never really looked at my hand, but I recall telling them my hand's burning, you know, my hand's burning. And then I remember they went and grabbed the, the, the water from the, uh, from the engine and dumped cool water on my hand. Um, I do recall that uh, pain relief there, but the ambulance arrives. They're going to put me on a C, they're going to C spine me on the board. I just get up and get on their gurney and tell them, let's go. You know, let's go. My hand's burning. Everybody said, you know, they all, they all thought that, you know, he, he's going to die any, any minute. He's in shock. So he's still talking. That's what the rumor was. Um, I had pretty much left, I left my footprints on the grass there. The power went out in that neighborhood because I became the ground. So I looked at, at, at one of the, uh, the other firefighters, Steve, and I said, Steve, jump in, ride with me to the, to the uh, hospital. He, you know, he looks back at the captain. Captain said, yeah, go ahead. He jumps in with me, and, and they're taking me to the hospital. I'm talking. I'm still talking. Um, in fact, I'm even kind of joking around back there. So I get into the ER, and that's when I started feeling, you know, my legs, my back, my butt. Every, I started feeling, you know, the pain from the burns. So they stripped me down, and that's when I had exit wounds. I had third-degree exit wounds, like uh, like seven holes. Like each calf was black and, and had a hole on each calf, my thigh, my underarm, my butt, cheeks. Um, I just had holes everywhere from the exit wound. So they, uh, they, uh, shipped me, they shipped, they were going to fly me over there, but I guess it was faster. The ambulance drove me to Fresno, their, their burn unit over there. And, uh, they, they gave me some morphine. And I, so I wake up when they're rolling me into the hospital there. And my friend that I told you that I bought the gift card for, he happened to be at the hospital. So I don't know how long everything took at the local hospital there in Tulare. Cause when I got up and I woke up and they're rolling me into the burn unit, I see my friend Nacho there and I sit up and I yell, happy birthday, bro. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the, the nurses, they all said, that's a good sign that he can still remember. That was a good sign. So they're rolling me into the hyperbaric chamber. And they asked me, do you have any, uh, you know, any issues or problems going into this tube? I said, no, just make sure you document two hours of confined space training. You know, <laughs> I'm still talking and joking around like this, James. And they're like, you know, I don't think this guy knows how severe his burns are. Yeah, but that's who I was. I'm, you know, that's, you know I, I like to joke around and. And and uh, so they did that. I remember being in the hyperbaric chamber. Then that led to to you know five six weeks at the at the, at the burn unit, um, I, and I was there. And then, again, that led to the amputation of my uh, mid forearm, left mid forearm. You know, they first removed. I think they first removed like three fingers. They were trying to save as much as possible. You know, the doctor did a great job there. Dr. Dominic, he did a great job because he actually did try to save as much as possible. He could have easily just amputated my my uh, arm above elbow, but he, he he left me a lever here and um, used skin grafts to leave that lever. You know, he actually took some fatty tissue to pat it up 
and then use skin grafts just to leave that lever there for a prosthetic. So that really helped out. Um, so I, I, you know, I ended up, uh, ended up in the hospital for, for I think five weeks and, uh, and a, a lot of support there from, from the, from the fire, fire service in general, you know, most, just all the neighboring agencies, firefighters came from everywhere to see me and, uh, a lot of family and, and, and friends support there, uh, which, you know, I think that kept my spirits up. Um, I always, I always had my spirits up in there. Um, I don't know if people ask me, well, you know, we, we want to know about, about, we want to see some of your downtime when you were, you know, sad. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I always kept my spirits up. Um, I did hear while I was there, you know, there was times, James, that I would hear people come and tell me, oh, you know, you need to start thinking of plan B or, you know, uh, we've never heard of a firefighter with uh, with a prosthetic or, a, uh, you know, an amputated limb. And all these, to me, I'm thinking, okay, I heard that growing up as a teenager when I wanted to become a firefighter. I heard all the individuals, you know, in the environment I grew up in, I heard them tell me it's too hard to be a firefighter. You can't be a firefighter. So I've already faced that type of adversity. So to me, that didn't bother me. Um, I just felt like, you know what, that's prove them wrong. You know, I'm going to make that decision. Um, and, you know, so uh, you can see the media was pretty heavy on me. You can see when I walked out of the hospital, I got footage of the media and, and you know, of course, all the support there. But, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, when I'm walking out of the hospital, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to get a prosthetic and we're going to put a spanner wrench there. And, you know, this is as I'm walking out of the hospital. You know, so I'm already thinking, you know, I already still have a, a vision. I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to work, you know, or I'm going to make that decision later. But so I, I was released from the hospital and uh, I was off for a couple months. I'm going to say about uh, four or five months, uh, James, of, of going through, through some uh, occupational therapy, uh, finding a, a prosthetist who's going to make my prosthetic. And I did find one. And we built it. I'm still with the same individual. But when I met him, he said, I'm more worried about your burns, um, you know, on your body than, than your actual prosthetic. Um, so we, you know, we we kind of worked hard. I found the right adapter um, device for, for, for my prosthetic because it took different adapters to find. And I found one that's called a farmer's labor hook. And that's how I can grab all the tools. You know, obviously, maybe some farmer invented it because this is how you grab the shovels and 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 any round handles. Um, so, you know, I was training again. I was training. Uh, I had lost a lot of weight. You know, I was really I was in really well shape before I went in. You know, again, I always worked out, so I lost a lot of weight, James. I remember, you know, coming out of the hospital. Now I'm still dealing with with my kids as single dad. And my parents came from from Los Angeles and spent some time, you know, helping me out with the kids. But, uh, you know, there was really nothing, no type of, of uh, therapy counseling or any of that for me and my kids. We didn't have anything. We just pretty much wrote it out. Um, I'm sure there probably was, but I didn't have the guidance to, to reach out for that. Um, so I, uh, again, I would go work out a couple of the firefighters, 
he would come pick me up. Carlton would come pick me up uh, in the evening. I didn't really want to go out much. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with body image now. I just lost a hand. Back then, it was rare. Now, you know, you got so many wounded warriors. Prosthetics are a fashion now. I mean, you have them everywhere with designs and so on. So I, back then, it was, you know, it was rare to see somebody with a missing limb, especially in upper extremity. You know, lower extremity, you know, you, they were much more advanced back then. Um, but, you know, I started going to the gym at night and started, you know, I want to build my strength back up. So I, what I did, I would, I would get an ankle strap and put it on my forearm and I used the cable machine all different directions and just started building up my, my strength again. I finally got fitted for a prosthetic. After about, about uh, six months, I got fitted for a prosthetic and I came back to work on light duty, doing prevention. Uh, but while I was there, I was on an eight to five light duty. I was training every day with the different crews that were coming on duty. I was training whatever training drill they had. You know, they allowed me to participate. So I was training on duty, off duty, James, um, till I felt really uh, competent with with my prosthetic. Um, you know, I, w I was re ready to to uh, take the manipulative exam, and I mean, I was just trained. I was that driven and and that competent that I knew exactly where I'm going to grab the hose when I connect. You know, I grab the male end, I I, I screw on the female end. You know, so I, I we had we hired some firefighters at the time, and we have our in in internal in house academy, and uh, I was given the opportunity to to be part of the academy, um, and again, it was it was it was a good thing. You know, I I did everything that was required. You know, I had a, I figured it out, and I would train, and you know, we did ventilation, we did vehicle extrication, we did. Um, just all the basic essentials. And I did it all with my prosthetic. Climb the aerial ladder. Um, you know, people ask me, what, what do you feel was the hardest or, or uh, for you? I, I would say just raising the, the, the ladder with the halyard. I said, as far as going hand over hand, I would grab a, a bite, pull it down and hold it with my prosthetic and grab another bite. And that's, you know, that's that's really probably one of the only things that I felt that I was doing different. Um, but I raised the ladder. I, you know, like I said, I the strength was there. I, I worked out. I'm, I'm, you know, that's who I am. I mean, I can, I'll do people on push-ups or whatever because I, I love to work out. So, so the physical um, part of it, the physical challenges were, you know, that's what we live for as firefighters. We love the physical challenges. They were there. The physical challenges I, I enjoyed because I was still learning. And you're, you know, to me, I'm a student my whole life. People ask me, are you an instructor or are you a student? I'm a student forever. I always learn. So uh, the physical challenges were there. Um, I don't think I really gave myself much time to, to mourn or, uh, or breathe, you know, uh, or grieve on 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 what actually happened because I was so driven and so busy, and I would come home and I'm taking care of my kids, and I really don't know how I did all that. Um, you know, I, if I had projects in the house, I would do it when they when I put them to sleep, and I was painting all night or whatever I would do, you know. And um, so so you know, uh, went through the academy, 
went through the academy and I uh, took all my final exams. You know, we did all the final manipulative exams and, and passed everything. Passed everything. I mean, we had I had uh, people from HR from the city. They were there when I was doing the the exams. Everybody was there. Everybody wanted to see, and I wanted people to see because I felt that confident. Um, there was a a, a a a point where I was connecting the the large diameter holes your supply line from the hydrant, and I was being timed on it. And I remember just getting to the cap of the hydrant. And instead of just putting the, the, the hydrant wrench, I just used my prosthetic and boom, hit it a couple of times, loosened it, and I was off to the races. I mean, I was you know driven that way. Um, so time came and uh, I passed everything, all the exams, and I got, uh, you know, I came back to work and uh, came back to work and I was reinstated back on duty, no, no accommodations. No restrictions. They didn't change anything for me. Came back as a firefighter. You know, I I was training on everything. I was training on on setting up an IV line. I was set training on taking blood pressure. I mean, I was dialed. I was. I knew exactly where I where I grabbed the stethoscope, uh, and you know, and came back. I passed everything. You know, we did C spine. Everything. All the basic uh, EMT skills. The basic firefighter skills that are required. Like I said, I've been there already as a firefighter 10, 11 years. It was just learning how to adapt with the prosthetic and the device, you know? And then, so I came back, came back uh, in January of 2003. A year later, I was back on duty, full-time, no restrictions, no accommodations, uh, back as a firefighter. Uh, I remember my very first day back on duty. The media was there. Uh, the media actually wrote, did a ride along. They got in in, the, in our engine with us, and and they videotaped me on the medical aid and so on, and putting on my turnouts. And uh, I mean, I, I passed everything, James. I put on, I donned my BA, put my gear on within the time that's required. Uh, so I did that. You know, I came back as a firefighter. Uh, then I went back. To, I was, you know, I was an instructor in in firefighter survival back then. Um, back then, it was it was Rick, you know, uh, which firefighter survival was part of Rick. Then they divided into two different classes. But I was, you know, I went back and did that again. I went back and did all my rope rescue um, courses again. I was already instructing these, but I would show up. I wanted to go back as a student, so I would show up. I remember we were in Fresno. Uh, doing a, a rescue systems one and chief Gurking from uh, Kings County. He was one of the instructors. So I would arrive or, or John Carvello and they were like, Hey, Lewis, you help us teach today. I said, no, I'm a student. Treat me like a student. I'm a student. And I, I, I want to just keep building my skills up with my prosthetic. And we were in the tower up there and I rappelled down from, I don't know, third, fourth floor, Rappel down and I came down and I went to Chief Gurking and the, his name's Chris and I walked over to Chris and I said, hey, Chris, who, who do I talk to if there's an injury? He's like, what happened? I go, I got a rope burn right here on my prosthetic. <laughs> Rappelling down. So he put a Band-Aid on there. I got a picture <laughs> of him putting a Band-Aid on there, James. Um, but again, you know, I was, like I said, I was driven. So I went back as a student to all the classes that I've already done in the past, you know, and then I was teaching, instructing that I want to go back as a, as a student. I went back to the confined space, all the 
firefighter survival. I went to San Bernardino County, took their their uh, their rig class, their firefighter survival class over there. Um, and again, people would kind of look at me like, "Okay, how's he? How's he? Uh, how's he going to? You know, do the ladder bailout? You know?" And I could see some of the instructors are walking around trying to act like they're not there to watch me. Um, I know what's going on. You know, I know I stand out. I know that, you know, people are curious, uh, you know, or don't want me to get hurt. But I tell them, hey, you know, because they're like, you might want to try it this way. I'm like, I got it. You know, I've done it several times. And this is not my first time. And so I was, you know, like I said, I was that active and that driven. And and still going back to where I left off, you know, training-wise, um, came back and, and finished, completed my my instructor's courses and completed and became a senior instructor in the, in the confined space. And, uh, uh, you know, started promoting through the ranks. I became a driver operator engineer. Uh, and again, that's, that to me, that was, that was, that was easy, pretty easy. I, you know, I was doing a lot of acting time before when as a firefighter, small departments, you get a lot of acting engineer time. Um, so I knew exactly how to grab my tools, how to grab my chainsaw, where I'm going to place my hand. Um, not, you know, connecting my hydraulic lines, you know, everything that we didn't have battery operated back then, uh, extrication tools. Um, and then I, and then, uh, we, you know, we opened up a new fire station. We had some, um, uh, people, uh, retirements and, and they promoted several captains and, uh, I tested for captain. Uh, and I was a captain for 12 years, uh, on an engine company. Uh, again, just, you know, Always training. That was, you know, training, training, training was, was me putting on classes all the time. Just, you know, that I was driven that way. So most of the, most of the fire, fire departments, especially here in this whole valley here, you know, back then they, they would see me at all the training classes and, and I know nobody never had to do anything different for me. You know, I, I remember going up to Sacramento just to renew my firefighter survival, um, sir. And, um, you know, they, those individuals, they didn't know who I was, but, you know, they watched me go through the skills. Some of them were kind of, Hey, does that, does, how do you do that? Does that not hurt you? And, oh, you know, that's, that's just, that's just, uh, you know, that's my hand. I used it as a tool, you know, going through this, uh, current, uh, um, San Bernardino County going through their firefighter survival course, or, you know, they, uh, they put us through these mazes and, and then you you know you get the entanglement prop, and then at the end of the wall they want you to breach through there without using any tools, you know, either your tank or your helmet and so on. My guys were it was me and two other guys that went and did this, uh, and uh, they already knew they were on the other side of that wall. They already knew what was going to happen. They seen my hook right go right through that sheet rock. That was the first <laughs> I cut it out really quick, you know. Boom, 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 boom! I cut through that sheet rock. I said, hey, that's you know. But again, going. Nothing was easy for me, James. You know, going through the entanglement prop, I kept my my prosthetic down next to my side because I don't want it to get tangled up. Uh, you know, you're blindfolded and so on. But uh, you know, n- nothing was easy to you know to to be successful in everything I've done. It, it's taken you know a lot of work that uh, that people don't see, like the iceberg, the picture of the iceberg. You know, nobody sees what's going on down at the bottom. They just see the top of the iceberg. Um, nobody sees all the struggles, uh, everything else that goes with it, you know, doing that and then coaching my kids, you know, I remember after losing my hand, you know, it was, it was hard for my kids, you know, they, they're friends, you know, they're now they're looking at, 
at me like, and they're looking at, and my their friends are looking at, oh, her dad or his dad don't have a hand. Um, that was rare for the kids to see that. I remember my son didn't want to play any sports, you know, when I got out of the hospital and I, I didn't allow that to happen. I said, no, I'm still, we're going to go back out there and I'm still going to continue to coach. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, I, I did whatever I can do to just keep them, uh, you know, stable and, uh, keep trying to keep everything as normal as possible, I should say. And, you know, and going to work. And like I said, sometimes I look back, I don't know how I did all that, uh, you know, but again, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of times that it was, it was difficult, uh, but I never said nothing. And after a while, nobody ever looked at me like I have a prosthetic. Everybody just, people forget I have a prosthetic. You know, around here, people forget I have a prosthetic. They said, well, it's just the way you, you work, the way you carry yourself and so on. Um, so, you know, I never, I was never one of those individuals that said, oh, why me? You know, I always said, try me. You know, that's who I am. You know, that's, and, uh, and you know, and 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 then I, you know, I was a captain. And later on, after those twelve years, uh, I tested for uh, battalion chief. Um, I, I didn't get it the first go. Of, I tested like two or three times. Um, you know, I didn't get it the first two times. I, I I scored high enough to to promote, but you know, they give it to other individuals. So then I went back and and uh, got my bachelor's degree. That was another challenge for me. James, you know, typing with one finger, people forget about all that. Because it's you're writing papers constantly when you're going for your degree, your your you know, the program. So I went back and did that and got my degree in in the uh, business administration with an emphasis on leadership. And that was that was that was, I, I missed that. That was great. So you know that kind of brought those skills up. You know, my writing skills and my you know education brought that up. So then I tested again for the for the battalion chief position and uh, I got promoted. So I was a battalion chief for four, four years. Um, and then I became the training battalion chief um, over training. And, uh, and then, and then uh, our fire chief retired. And uh, when he retired, he, uh, he assigned me as a, as a fire chief. Uh, so I did that for three years. I was ready to retire, you know, but I put those other three years in there, James, and uh, I'm glad I did because I brought a lot of good things to our department. Uh, you know, uh, had a, I mean, I had a really good relationship with with the individuals there. I knew how to how to communicate with them and and read them when I see something's going on, something's not wrong. That's one thing I, they can talk, they can all tell you is that you know I was fair with everybody, and to me. I don't care who you are. If you work hard and you come to work and, and ask yourself, how can I make my department better? How can I serve the community better? Um, I'm going to acknowledge you if I see you doing that. I don't care who you are. And those people that uh, are lazy, and I'm not afraid to say the word because they're lazy, you know, they have no drive. They just come in, do their little time, sit around the recliner as much as they can and punch out in the morning. I don't have nothing for you, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry, but you know that you're not making you're not making my department better that way. And I would call them in, James. That's one thing I can tell you. When they did not get promoted, I would call them in and sit them down and tell them why I did not promote them and tell them what they have to do because um, I want to promote them. I tell them I want to promote you, but you got to put your, the work in. I said nothing was handed to me, nothing. 
I said, you know, I did a lot for this department. I put I, I put the, uh, the organized the USAR the the training facility. Um, you know, there was really no uh, for the training facility. There was really no no uh, funds for that. I, I mean, I, I reached out to the industry. It was me and another captain, and uh, and we're the only two that really had an interest in the technical rescue at that time. But we reached out to the industry to get most of all our props donated. You know, I got vaults donated. I got silos. I mean, so, you know, I did a lot of work for my department and, uh, you know, hard work works, pays off, you know. So that's how I felt as a chief. I was fair with everybody, but, you know, don't go taking a class or a couple of classes a month before promotions and think you're going to change my mind. So, so I was really fair with everybody. I can, you know, call somebody in if I can read them that something's going on, something's not right. And that's, I think that's, that's the major difference with me and, and other in, individuals that have been in that position. I said, I care about the firefighter. I care about my people. I really truly care. And they all know that, you know, till this day, they all, now they, you know, they reach out and tell them, I care about everybody. I want, you know, I want to make sure I help you, make sure, sure that you're fit for duty. And if you're not, you don't need to be here. I said, I don't hate to see anything happen to anybody. I've been through it and I don't want to see it happen to anybody else. So, if I see something, you know, you need to go home if you're not feeling it. We're not going to wait around till after the fact, um, you know, and then, you know, try and do something after the fact. But but that that's one thing, you know, before I left also, you know, we put the, the mental wellness program in place. Um, we had one of our captains, Vincent, that spearheaded it and, and I supported it as a chief and and we did a good job with that. We put a peer support team and, and I, and I, and I brought some, uh, some of, uh, individuals, uh, I don't know, you and Andy Ruiz and a couple of the guys from LA city to come speak to our department. I always brought, I brought Lionel to come, uh, Crothers to speak to our department. Um, you know, Don Abbott, I, I was doing everything, um, as a chief officer to, to make my department because we had a reputation in the valley of our department being, up there as far as when it comes to training, everybody would ask, when are you guys putting some training on? Um, because I pushed it. I was the advocate for training. And I always brought people from everywhere to come and put on the class or train the trainer. Um, you know, that's I did everything I can uh, to, to make sure that everyone gets the best training possible. But, um, you know, right before I retired also, you know, we had a, they had an incident at one of our neighboring agencies in Porterville. We had two fatalities over there. And both of those individuals were really close to me. Um, one of them, you know, he helped me. He was an instructor with me. We taught together uh, at the academy. Young, younger generation, you know, I, they kind of looked up to me. I mentored them. And the other one was a lot younger, where he grew up down the street from me. When uh, my son played football with his with his older brother, and as a kid, he always wanted to be a firefighter. So, you know, we had, I, I lost those two guys over there um, before I retired. In fact, I was on my way home from from meeting up with Lionel. He was in Orange County. They were doing a, a fire ground survival class. And on my way home from there, uh, I got a phone call that, you know, the city of Porterville has a May Day going on. Okay, so I started thinking. And the first thing I asked, you know, check if Ray's, Ray's on duty. Ray Figueroa, captain, he's the one that he's one of the ones that we lost. Uh, and uh, so later on, I got the on the way home, I got the phone call that that it's, it's, it was Ray. And Patrick Jones was the firefighter, so we lost those two, and that 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 was pretty uh, pretty hard on me. 
you know, because I was pretty close to these individuals. Even though they're neighboring agency, they were still really close to me. I've known them since they were young, young, young individuals. But, uh, but yeah, that's a, it's a little bit about me, James. Well, I mean, there's so much in, you know, the last uh, 30 minutes of what you've, you've told us, but I mean, it's, it's beautiful to hear it, you know, chronologically from that initial event to your journey back to the fire service and all these other elements. When I heard you talking about prior to the event and trying to maintain a household, I was a single dad going not only through the fire service, but going through medic school at the same time. And I look back and I'm like, I don't know how the hell I did it because you come off a super busy shift, not sleeping at all, go straight into a medic classroom for you know nine hours then go to bed wake up then do a ride along with a hospital you know a, a clinic clinical with the hospital ride along with with the uh, department where i lived not where i worked because my department offered zero <laughs> support to their medic students right. even though yeah. they were screaming for them another whole conversation sure. right but then fast forward a couple more years i ended up having a pretty severe back injury which again you're still a single parent. You're still trying to maintain your household, but now your physicality has been taken away. You're not around your tribe anymore. You know, you, what well, you used to be able to climb, you know, a hundred stories with, with your gear on, and now you can't even put your shoes on anymore. So those were a couple of times where when I look back, it was definitely some of the lower points of my, my career, you know, and then the, the pendulum swung again and I, and I was fine. Right. I never got to the like suicide ideation element, but definitely very very deep in you know depression and leaning heavily on alcohol um with all the things that you've told us when you look back now with this you know this lens that you have a full career in the fire service of line of duty deaths of um you know near career ending injuries what were some of the lowest points in your path and how were you able to navigate those um well, the, I think one of, one of the lowest points was, you know, when, when I, when I lost my hand and, uh, they weren't sure what they wanted to do with me. The city never had to deal with any type of injury that way. So they weren't sure, you know, I think I had to fight for my job. You know, I had to get an attorney just to help fight for my job back, um, to prove that I can do the job because I was not going to do it, James if I was going to get hurt or if anybody else was going to get hurt, I was not going to put myself in that situation. I want to make sure that I can do the job. Um, so there was a, a time where I was training. I was still, you know, back to work and I'm, uh, I'm training to uh, come back to work. I'm still on light duty, but uh, I had my gear on because I was training with the crew and they had a vehicle fire. And I asked the captain, can I jump in the engine? And that was the first time I got in the engine after my injury. He's like, yeah, come on, let's go. You know, just pretty much stand back. Okay, so we get to the vehicle fire. And you know me, James, I grab, I grab one of the, one of the, the tools. Um, it was a, it was a, you know, engine compartment. I grab one of the tools and pry, pry the, the hood open on the side so they can stick the nozzle in there. Anyways, everything went well. Well, that evening, they call me, the captain calls me, and he said, hey, uh, you know, someone from City Hall seeing you out there, they just want to make sure that you're not, you're not, pretty much tell me you're not allowed to get on the engine and go with us on calls. It just crushed my heart. Like, they don't want me to come back. 
Um, you know, I remember I was driving and, you know, I just crushed my heart, you know, um, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I, I just felt like they're trying not, you know, they're, they don't want me back, first of all. So that, 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 that was low, you know, uh, any other time was pretty much, um, um, I think a lot of it had to do more when, 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 uh, when I'm dealing with, with my kids, you know, the relationship thing that kind of brings you down. Um, you know, that, that kind of brings you down. Uh, uh, like I said, James, we never, uh, we never really had professional, uh, assistance or, or not for my kids, not, you know, for me, they sent me to pain management once and there's a group of people talking about their, their back pain. I'm like, I don't need to be here. I need to be at the lake wakeboarding. Um, you know, it's, that's my therapy to me, you know, I, you know, but, but as far as feeling low, I, I think just going through the, the, the motions of, uh, of, 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 uh, not, um, not knowing what the outcome was going to be, if they wouldn't allow me to come back or not. Um, again, there's, there's other times that, you know, when I'm by myself, you know, I have my low moments, you know, but, uh, other than that, I, I, uh, I, you know, the way I, I snap myself out of it is either well, for one, you know, I, like I told you, I go to the gym too. I always look back at myself and, and tell myself, Hey, I need to be grateful. I need to be grateful for being alive, continuing to be here for my kids and, and so on. You know, I just kind of tell myself like, Hey, you know, for everything that I have and the great career that I had. But, but back then my, my moments, my low moments were, um, I don't think they were too, uh, too obvious because I think I was just so driven all the time. You know, I, w I was always the type of person that I'm always busy. I'm finding something to do. And I think, like I said, that probably comes from as a child, you know, I'm always uh, uh, adventurous, you know, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much how I've always been. But, uh, but people always ask me the same question you just did. Well, we want to see some of your low moments. And I'm, I'm trying to recall most of my low moments is when I'm by myself. Um, and, and I'm thinking, you know, or I'm on a long drive, you know, that's probably my low moments when there's times that I break down. Uh, I'm human, you know, I break down and cry and so on. But most of those times are really when, when I'm by myself on a long drive or, um, you know, and that's, and, and again, that's one thing that I never really got heavy into drinking or drugs because I knew myself that drinking is, is not, we don't mix. Drinking and I don't mix well. Um, you know, people tell me, you drink one drink, you're okay. Two drinks, you're okay. After that, you know, you, <laughs> your mind starts thinking some crazy stuff. So I go, yeah, you know, so I try not to, you know, do that. And when I was going through hard moments, I, I don't drink. So I'm, I think that uh, I have the strength to, to, uh, to not drink if I don't want to drink. Um, but as far as the low moments go, I'll never, I'll never forget that one there that I just mentioned to you when they called me and said, Hey, you don't, don't be on the fire engine. Um, other than that, you know, most of them were, you know, it was pretty much, you know, going through, a you know, going through, going through promotions or, or I know I did well. And then they call me and tell me, you missed it by one point. Oh, it's, it's, that's a political move there. 
you know, um, you know, I know, I know that I'm well aware of it, but I never allowed it to change who I am, James, as a firefighter, as every, every, every position, every rank that I've had, James, I've always strived to go out and get the training that I need to be better than everybody else as a firefighter. I'm preparing to become an engineer, driver, operator. I put myself through the, uh, through the, uh, uh, Fire Mechanics Academy. I would do everything I can to, uh, you know, be the best, uh, which it didn't matter much. Um, you know, and small departments, they already know who they want to promote and so on. But I gave them a run for their money, you know, and then that wasn't going to change. You know, that was not going to change. I, um, I went on, took every course and, you know, did everything I can just to, just to, uh, to stay on top. Um, like, like I said, I look back and I, I tell my, I don't know how I did all that. You know, of course, my, my parents helped me a lot because they would come and spend the week with my kids while I go take a course, you know, out of town. But back then, everything, um, I paid for it on my own. Now you, you have tuition reimbursement. Now we're, we're begging individuals to go take a course for paying for their, you know, their hotel and their course. And, uh, um, back then, if there was any tuition reimbursement, it was kept really, uh, uh, really undercover for certain individuals. But I, I pretty much uh, put myself through through it all, um, and, and you know, it didn't allow anything. Didn't allow me to stop my my destiny or my goals. And if it didn't work out, I'm 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 back at it again the next day. Um, but uh, you know. That's that's really you know what what made me who I am today. Well, here's an interesting observation, and I've, it's funny you're talking about tuition reimbursement. My the county Orange County in Florida where I was working, and I put myself through medic school. They were supposedly doing an in-house program, never materialized. I might well screw it. I'm going to go to school. Um, they were dying for medics. They wouldn't even cover tuition reimbursement. But then were more than happy for me to walk through as a medic with zero, you know, support whatsoever. But you've gone through this journey, you know, you've you've given your service as a firefighter, you've created all these, you know, the training division and bringing special ops to your department. But it's interesting, you, you lose an arm in this near fatal accident. But it, when I ask you about trauma, Technically, it's organizational betrayal that is actually the thing that resonates with you. And this is, I think, one of the least discussed elements of mental health in the fire service is the number of people that I know that we're in the same circle with that are super aggressive firefighters that love this job, that get the concept that people's lives depend on us that are fighting an uphill battle in their department. And so I think so many of us um, have experienced that, but it's something that a lot of people don't understand. Is if you're a part of a tribe and you're giving your heart and soul to that tribe and that tribe cuts your legs from under you, that is as detrimental to mental health as childhood trauma and some of the other things that we're more familiar with. You hit it right on the nail, um, James, because uh, I faced that many times. Um, you know, many times. They they, they set obstacles and... Uh, you know, again, I've overcome them um, in a good way. You know, I did it in a good way, professionally. Not, um, but they would change. You know, um, they would sometimes change the qualifications for a promotion, thinking I didn't have that qualification. Um, they're like, 
I didn't know you had that uh, chief officer certificate. Uh, there's a lot of things you don't know about. <laughs> okay, um, and, and one of them is going back and uh, and getting my degree. You know, they didn't they didn't have that that requirement before that till I went and got it. Before I got it, I said, "Okay, I'll go get my degree." Um, you know, is it is it hard? Am I paying for it on my own? Yes, but you know, to me, I'm like, "Hey, that's my next challenge," and and I'm going to continue to to strive to you know meet my my goal and and so on. You know, it's I'm like I'm not going to allow an individual to change who I am. Um, no, you know, because you know they can't do what I'm doing. You know, they can't do what I'm doing um, physically, <laughs> you know, um, and they know how hungry I am. And, and I always mean well, you know, um, you know, I went through the hazmat tech uh, at CSTI in San Luis Obispo. Uh, again, you know, I get there, you know, of course, everyone's looking at me like, oh, he has a prosthetic. It's rare for everybody. I mean, everywhere I went, James. You know, other firefighters are going to look at me like, how does he do his job? They Maybe they think uh, this guy just uh, answers the phones or, you know, they don't, they're curious. Nobody knows till they see me out there doing the, doing the, the work, you know, in action out there. Um, but I went through the whole hazmat tech course. Um, I don't think there was anybody else in my department that did that. Um, you know, they got the, you know, maybe the, the fro class, but, but there was certain individuals that were like, oh, you, you, you can't take that course. You know, we don't have a hazmat team here. I'm like, it's grant funded. Why can't I? And I'm thinking, that's because you don't have it and you can't do that. But I'm still going to do it. And I still did it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to get in there because I want to do that. And that's my next challenge. So I went through it in a four-week course. And uh, and I have, you know, the first two weeks is just chemistry. You know, you're burning candles all night long. But uh uh, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was a challenge, you know, being in the encapsulated suit and, and with the prosthetic and we duct tape the heck out of everything and, and, uh, we figured it out and, you know, they set the props up and I go and, and do what I have to do. It's like everybody else. So, so yeah, there, there's, that's one thing that I was telling you when I became the chief, I made sure that I was fair with those individuals. I was not going to allow that kind of stuff to happen. That's happened in the, in the past, uh, you know, or has happened in other other uh, agencies where where hard workers are not being acknowledged. Um, that was the first thing I told you. I said, that's one thing to me. I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are, male or female. Um, I promoted the first female captain in our department. Um, I promoted two females, one to engineer, one to a captain. Um, you know, uh, but that's because they worked hard and they earned it. They were, cons and there's, you know, they're consistent with taking courses, uh, technical uh, uh, rescue courses. I mean, they're out there doing things. I said, so you're going to be acknowledged for working hard here, you know. Uh, and and I wasn't going to allow that to happen because it's happened too much, and that's not fair. That's not fair to people that work hard and are hungry and doing the job and doing extra, extra curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. It kind of makes me remember a story. The last place I worked for, they did have some tuition reimbursements. So I would use it and do, like you said, all the, the tech classes and things. And one year, 
I hadn't done VMR for a few years, so extrication. So I submitted to do operations again. You were talking about being a student. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Like when you do a VMR course in the Florida State College here, you get so much tool time. By the time you're done, you're almost ready to hand off. I've never handed a tool to anyone, but you're right. almost you're almost there. You're like, oh my God. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but so it's a great thing. And they were like, well, why do you need it? You already have it. Like, because you don't just check a box with a course. You want to stay good at it. And where I was working then, we just didn't get very many accidents. It was protecting a theme park and they owned, you know, thousands of acres. So everything was kind of slow. We go in an accident once in a while, but you just weren't using it in the real world. So I wanted it to stay consistent. But that mentality of you already checked the box. It's like, no, you know, like the, the ropes. Oh my God, my mind does not retain ropes and knots. If I'm not doing it constantly, I forget it. So, so yeah, I mean, that mentality of, oh, you've got that cert now. Well, yeah, you have that piece of paper, but are you maintaining those skills? That's right, James. Uh, uh, you know, rescue system. You know, when I first took the first the first uh, rescue system uh, courses, uh, it was called Heavy Rescue. And it was, I took it at Camp Elliott in San Diego. Um, they had sent a captain to go to go uh, take the class. Well, he didn't send him. He, I'm sure he asked if he can take this course. Back then, we didn't have all that equipment. We didn't have uh, all the skills in our department. We had the basic skills, but... But, you know, that's when that class first came out. It was called Heavy Rescue. They later broke it down to Rescue Systems 1 and Rescue Systems 2. They made two classes out of it later, like everything else. Uh, but we went and and I was going, I was I was a firefighter. He was a captain, but I was tagging along with him um, just, just, just to see if I can get in the class. They were paying for him, not for me. Uh, but I actually went over there and they said, yeah, there's, there's, there's space, there's room for you. So I paid for it and, and, uh, you know, and stayed in the same room with him. But, uh, you know, I took that class, James, I've taken it maybe three, maybe three times before my injury. And once I, like I mentioned to you after, uh, once I had a prosthetic, I took it maybe two other times. I've done the same with all the other, you know, I've taken, if there's a class that I would take it and people are like, why do you, why are you taking it again? You already checked the box. Like you said, I said, no, I want to be proficient. I want to, you know, I want to keep my skills up till this day. You know, I still teach at the Academy. You know, they, they asked me, I said, I like to keep my skills up. I like to keep my skills up as much as I can. I've backed off a little bit now. Um, but, uh, you know, I do it just to, to stay proficient, keep my skills up. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the only way you're going to do it. You can't just, there's individuals that check the box. They got the cert and, you know, that's, that's the end of that. Uh, but they can't, you ask them to set up a Z rig or set up a system and they have no clue. Yeah. And I was, no I was clue. worried about being that guy. That was the point. I didn't yeah. want to be yeah. that guy. But yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's like I said, you know, I, I think I had a good a good run and, and I thank God every day for for just allowing me to still be here. Um, you know, things could always be worse in so many ways. Absolutely. Well, I want to throw one more kind of area at you before we wrap up because I know we've been talking for two hours now. I called Lionel and said that we were going to talk and, you know, obviously there's things online and, you know, reports and a couple of interviews that you've done. But I'm like, all right, what are the things that I won't find online? What should I ask? And he says, asked about the mentorship that you're doing now with other 
first responders who have been burned. So you mentioned Greg Millay and Brandon Anderson. So um, it doesn't have to be those people, but talk to me about how your recovery of injuries sent you to the mentor role, not just with our youth, but with, you know, burn survivors in the fire service. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's one thing that I've had, you know, I, I spend a lot of time volunteering at the burn unit as a peer supporter. They would, you know, call me to go up there if they had a, um, not only just a, a firefighter, but if they had a, a, a burn survivor there, if they had an amputee there, um, well, they would ask me to go speak to them. Uh, recently, I had I've had two individuals that reached out to me. Um, one of them is a firefighter in Florida. Um, he found me on the internet, and he, he, you know, his department reached out to me, and he said, "Hey, you know, you're you're you know, we've looked everywhere, and you're a pioneer. You're a pioneer. You you know you you know you came back to work as an amputee, and so on." And, uh, you know, and he shared his story with me and he lost his hand uh, due to a uh, mortar or illegal firework off duty. Um, so he lost his hand and he amputated at, at his wrist. And so I got to, to know him pretty well. And I, uh, I actually flew out there to Florida. I told him, I'll go out there when you're ready to get fitted for your prosthetic. You know, I'll be there with you and I'll guide you through it. And then we will... Uh, We'll go, you know, I'll show you how I, how I, you know, you know, grab the tools and the equipment, how I, you know, do everything as a firefighter. Uh, I'll go out there and, and spend the time with you and, and guide you and show you and, and tell you which, which, which device is going to work for you and so on. So the time came where uh, he was going to get fitted that, that Monday. Well, he was already getting, he was already got fitted. He was going to receive his prosthetic. And I went out there and I flew out there. And uh, I went with him that morning to pick up his prosthetic. And then we went to the fire station. He's an he's a engineer, driver, operator. And he said that's all he wants to be. But they were doing some uh, training for, for promotions that week. So he said that would be a good time for, for him to be able to use the equipment and so on. Anyways, I went out there and we picked up his prosthetic that morning and we went to the firehouse. And there was you know, a lot of firefighters out there training um, for for the for their testing and so on. And I could sense, I could read it. I said, you know, he just has a prosthetic. He doesn't even know where to start, James. I could sense the the pressure, the stress. I could, you know, I could feel it on him. Um, so I said, hey, listen, we're gonna go somewhere and train where there's nobody there watching us. We went inside the app floor. Um and I showed him how I roll hose, how I unroll hose, how I climb up, go up to the aerial ladder, how I connected the hoses to the to the hydrant. Um, I took some adapters with me. Uh, I put one on the steer. They have a, a, a fire engine for training on reserve engine. We put the adapter on there, took him for a drive, showed him how, how to uh, – connect to hydrants. I had them spot hydrants. Uh, I pretty much spent the week with him. You know, he had some issues with his prosthetic and so on, but, you know, we got that taken care of, but, but he got, he, he learned the basics of what he needs to do. Um, so he just called me what last two weeks ago. I think he's taking his finals test to be a, 
to be uh, fit for duty, come back on duty. He's been on light duty the whole time, so he's been around the department. But I did that, you know, and I, again, this is, you know, and I had another individual here uh, locally, same thing. He lost his hand out at the desert with an illegal mortar, blew his hand off. So he reached out to me. Um, I've been, you know, helping and working with him. He hasn't received the prosthetic, but he needs a lot of help. Uh, I think he needs some help just uh, prepping him in the right uh mentality um he's having some some hard time but he, he just got back he's back to work now um but they have him in a in a he was a lineman now they have him more like as a safety position he, he wasn't happy with the safety position so i had to sit him down and try to remind him that he needs to be a little more grateful that you know how to give him a, the little uh they tell him louis give him your louis talk give him a you know, the guys always, the burn survivor guys are like, hey, Louie, you need to talk to this guy. You know, I think, I guess I, I come across, you know, a little stern sometimes. Um, and I have to, you know, but uh, so I've been working with him. Um, uh, you know, uh, those two, it's just funny because, you know, those two guys, I mean, it, it happened about the same time, the same type of injury. But they reached out to me and they found me, James, and again, you know, I don't say no. Um, I'll do whatever I can to to help these individuals out. Uh, same thing with some of the youth, you know, not just fire service related, but some of the at-risk youth, you know, I'll go out of my way to to help them, mentor them. Um, but, uh, you know, I continue to, uh, to move forward and do everything that I can, you know, that I can, that I'm possible, you know, whatever is possible, I'm going to help them out. But yeah, I'm dealing with these two guys, uh, you know, and, and again, you know, they'll, they'll call me to go speak to, to someone that's, uh, not doing well, probably been, uh, got, you know, burn injuries or amputations and so on. So I'll go out and do whatever I can. Um, I don't know what it is, uh, you know, but we build that bond and, and, uh, I think, I, I think that they know they can, we can relate to the injury. We can relate to what's going on and, you know, I'm telling them what's going to happen, and it happens. And you know, I, I guess I am the pioneer for that. And I've been through it already, so I'm sharing my experience. Um, I've connected them with so many resources, with different uh, prosthetic uh, places, uh, surgeons, uh, guys that had the surgery. I've connected them with all these individuals. I said every resource that I know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that that I give you that information. Um, I didn't have any of that, you know. Uh, I didn't really didn't have that type of uh, the guidance. Um, you know, coming out and out of the hospital, uh, but uh, that's why I make sure that I can provide as much as I can for those. But yeah, I'm, I'm still doing. That. I mean, it doesn't end for me, James. You know, that's. I think I sent you that clip of a, a fire we just had last month. Let's talk about was, that because it was perfect timing. Yeah. Well, that was a. Uh, that was, you know, that was, <laughs> was a good day for me because uh, not for house that burned down, but, you know, I, I was at the night, I was in Tulare, which is, like I said, 10, 15 minutes away. And I'm working, doing some work on the house out there. And, um, you know, my friend calls me and he, you know, there, he calls me and he said, uh, hey, Lewis, there's a fire. There's a fire in the house behind me. 
and uh, and it's big, and I can see the column from over there. I can see a huge column, obvious. You know, it looks like a commercial building burning. Um, and what it is, it's a structure with looks like a wrecking yard in the backyard. Cars, motorhomes, everything you can think of back there. Big lot in the back. So, you know, he's calling me. I could hear it in his voice. He's like, hey. I said, hey, just wet. Make sure you wet your, your fence. It's a wooden picket fence. Make sure you wet it down really well. Okay, he's doing that, and, and he's like, Louis, it's, it's it's growing, it's expanding. I, I, I'm gonna, you got to get over here. I'm going to pull my computer and my TV out of my house. I said, all right, I'm going to start heading that direction. So I uh, I started driving, and I could see, I mean, it's it's growing. And I, I see new columns, and, and I'm thinking, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm 80% sure that the exposures around there, some of the other structure are catching on fire. So as I'm getting closer and I pull up to go down the, the street, it's in the afternoon, maybe 11 in the, in the a.m. There's just so much traffic, James, of all the looky-loos with their phones, you know, videotaping. So I just park my truck and jog down the street to his house. And I get to his house and I go in the backyard and it's burning back there. That the neighbors have fences on fire. That his fence is on fire. Um, and there's no firefighters there, no fire engines there. They're not they're on the next street, you know, in front of the, the structure on the alpha side of the structure that's burning. And I think at that time they also had another structure fire going on in town. So there's so a couple of civilians there with the hose, which is not doing anything but pissing on it. And I look around and I said, hey, let me go see who the, the IC is on this. We need to get a fire engine over here like ASAP because it's going to catch on fire. Um, I run out I, and I, I open the gates. He had double doors. I open the gates. I say, keep these gates open. And I run, I'm jogging down the street and I see a, a fire engine uh, from a neighboring agency. I think they called for mutual aid because they had another structure going. And as I'm jogging down the street, this fire engine, it, it's in the traffic with all these cars, you know. But I see the, the the captain, the driver, and I know these individuals. I train them in the academy and so on. So I run down and I just look at, at the at the driver, the captain, and I'm like, I need you over here. I need an exposure line over here. I have the perfect access. Gates are open for you. And I'm jogging and he just follows me and I tell him exactly where to stage. And uh, as he pulled up, James, I pulled his cross leg and I extended it all the way to the, because it was only, they were only uh, staffed with two, driver operator and the captain. I extended the, the, the inch and three quarter line all the way to the backyard. And I was, I just, I went into this command mode. I got there and I yelled, ready for water. And they charged that line, James. And I just started knocking the fence down. I just started, uh, you know, putting fire out. And, I, and it's funny because there was a a, a, a young, um, uh, I th he was one of my students, you know, a young guy there. He was, must have been riding his bike because he had his bike helmet on. And he's like, hey, chief. And I'm like, pull the hose, pull the hose. <laughs> and then once I started knocking it down, I let him hold the nozzle and I got behind him. Now I'm guiding him what to hit and so on uh, 
Um, and we, we knocked it down. We knocked it down um, back there in the, in the, in the, on the Charlie side. We knocked it down. And, uh, you know, after that, I, I left as I was leaving. I told him, you can put your computer and TV back in the house now. <laughs> oh, by the way, you, you left your wife and kids in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, then I seen a couple individuals I know, some civilians, some some of the uh, law enforcement cops that I know. And they're like, hey, chief, you know, you know, I'm like, hey, man, you know, whatever I can do to help, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And that's that's I'm not going to watch something happen and where I, where I can do something to help the, the situation. But that was that was that was good. That was good, James. That's turned that's out to be good. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I always have a few things in my car. You know, if you ever end up passing something, you know, traffic accident, shooting, whatever it is, I don't think we ever we ever lose that. To be honest. No, no, no. I mean, I've been sometimes. You know, if I see something, uh, you know, an injury on the on the on the high school football field or something, and there's nobody there. I'll walk down and see what I can help with. But if there's nobody there doing anything. But uh, but yeah, that's 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 good. That's uh, that's a little bit about my story there, James. Well, I mean, it's been an amazing story. I just want to pull one thing out of you before you know we close out. Um, I know that you're very passionate about the um, Phoenix Society. So, for people listening, talk to me about the resources they offer, and if there's any way people listening can support that. Um, yeah, the Phoenix Burn Society, you know, to me, that was a, that was a, a blessing when I got introduced to the, to the uh, Phoenix Burn Society, the World Burn Congress. Um, <clears throat> actually, the nurse, uh, the nurse manager at the burn unit here uh, in Fresno, she's not there, she retired, Sandy, she retired. You know, she, uh, you know, I, I was doing a lot of peer support over there, but I, I like I mentioned to most of those nurses over there, um, I said, you know, you guys call me to come and talk to individuals here to do peer support, but nobody's reaching out to me to check on me. I said, you know, um, you know, sometimes I leave from here and I feel good about what I did for somebody to help them, but I get in my car and I'm driving and I feel emotional sometimes, you know, there's really nobody reaching out to me. And so she, you know, said, you know, decided, you know, she introduced me, oh, we're going to, you know, pay for you to go to World Burn Congress and so on. And so I, and, and, and I went and, um, and that's where I met some of the other firefighters. And when you go out there, um, you actually meet people and you hear stories, testimonies that, uh, and you actually look at yourself and go, I don't have it as bad as they do. You see other individuals that, you know, were burned much worse than you were or are, you know, facing, you know, worse times that don't have anybody. You just meet individuals that realize that, you know what, um, it could always be worse for yourself. Um, and, and it's a great, they have, you know, they have classes and, and courses and uh, uh, assistance, but you meet so many other burn survivors from all over the world. And that's where I've met, you know, several firefighters. Um, so it's, it's been a positive thing. I've spoken on their panel before. Um, but we actually, at one point, we're putting a curriculum. We put a curriculum together for firefighters. Cause when I first went over, they didn't have anything that specialized on firefighter, um, burn survivors. Um, they do now. 
Um, I haven't, you know, due to the, the whole uh, pandemic, uh, it's been virtual for the last couple of years. This is the first uh, year that they're going to have it uh, in person after the whole pandemic. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that's that's one thing that I, I did get a lot of uh, uh, positive feedback and a lot of good networking from other burn survivors there. You know, I met some of the survivors from the Rhode Island um, the fire that happened out in Rhode Island, station fire. I've met some of the survivors, uh, you know, just meet other individuals and realize that, you know, that uh, it could always be worse and you're not alone, you know, and you, you could always help other individuals, you know, through their programs. Um, so it's it's been a good thing, you know, that's that's Phoenix Burn Society. And that's what introduced me to, to the Washington, D.C., the D.C. Burn Foundation, you know, those those individuals, they do a lot for other burn survivors, for firefighters. Um, you know, that's how I got introduced to them. But, yeah, the Phoenix uh, Burn Society was always, a, it, it became a really positive, positive thing for me to be involved in that. And and uh, I wish I can do more right now. Um, you know, they want me to be a peer supporter uh, instructor uh, for the Spanish community. Um, I just told them I need to hold off a little bit because I have so many other projects going on and I, I want to be able to give 100% to whatever I commit to. And I felt like right now I don't have the time to give that 100%. So I said, let me hold off a little bit on that because um, I'm getting pulled in too many different directions. And one of the things that I have to learn is to say that not right now, you know, let's take a moment because I get pulled so many different directions. Um but yeah, that that was that was a, that's a good thing for for all of us, and that's and we you know it's also good networking because we meet once a year there and kind of bring us back to what you know to what we need to do. Um, uh, and, you know, I've met a lot of firefighters that I had the opportunity to talk to them and and hear their stories, and they hear our stories, and and then they find out that they're not alone, and you know. You're not alone out there and, and other people have it a lot worse than they do. So I think it kind of, it, it kind of motivates or, or, or wakes people up like, Hey, you know, it could have been worse. These individuals have it a lot worse than I do. I still have all my limbs. I still can see and so on. So that's, that's a positive, a positive, uh, uh society. Beautiful. Well, I'm sure people listening would love to find a way to connect with you. Where are the best places online or on social media to to reach out? Um, I don't have any social media right now, um, James, but uh, I have an email address for now. And you're welcome to to give my email address uh, and I can get back to them. Beautiful. Okay. Uh, if anyone's interested in, in connecting with Lewis, then send me a message and uh, I'll get that email to you. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, Brilliant. Well, I want to say thank you so, so much. I mean, we spent over an hour talking about East LA drug prohibition and the tradition in the fire service. And obviously then you, you led your, led us through your incredible journey. Um, there is so much to pull from this conversation. I know we've been setting up this, this, uh, interview for a while, but I think, as I said before, the universe always chooses the right time. And you just had that incredible fire the other day. So that was a, a great way to cap off this conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you. Thank you, James, for, uh, not just, for giving me this opportunity, but thank you for everything you're doing, you know, for, for everyone out there, for, 
military first responders, you know, you know, thank you for taking the time to do something like that. Cause I know it takes a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of, it consumes a lot of time for you to set up your, you know, your podcast and, and get good positive feedback that helps everybody out there. You know, I've heard some of the podcasts that you've, uh, you know, just the recent one, you talked about the tradition and the history and, and, you know, it helps everybody it kind of brings you back or, or gives you information that you didn't, you know, you didn't, have or a knowledge that you you know you weren't aware of so thank you for doing what you're doing